I fear for the future? I fear for it mightily. And shocker, here comes your curveball. I'm not saying that as cranky old man who thinks these darn kids today just aren't made of the same stuff. No, no, that's not the future to which I refer as we begin this show on the 12th of December, 12-12-2023. No, the future to which I refer is that which is controlled by the machines. You know, artificial intelligence and its emergence and how much we rely on the machines. As the theme song says, he's a working man because men and women, people, actually work. They can work. They do work. Computers, on the other hand, sometimes they develop a mind of their own and then they just don't work at all. But you know what? We don't need them. Well, actually, wait a minute. I kind of do. I've got one here beside me. It's going to work just fine as we dive into the show for another day. And thank you very much for stopping by, spending some of your valuable time with us. It is the most valuable commodity you have, after all. And I'm, I'm going to reward you. I promise. I mean, I try to do that every day. I hope I come somewhat close. But before 9.30 this morning, in fact... I think we'll get to it even before 9.15, so in the next seven to eight minutes, who I believe to be, quite possibly, the smartest counselor we have elected anywhere in this community. We're going to get there. But, of course, it is the morning after the night before, and you know what that means, right? The hook there from Clutterbuck was worse than the penal, or the penalty shot now scores! Matthews in front of the net, set up by Marner, and the Maple Leafs have a one nothing lead on the first power play opportunity of the game. You see, the morning after a Leafs game the night before, we get time for a little AM on AM, in the AM, no big deal. Austin Matthews now tied for the National Hockey League lead in goals. He's got five in his past five games. Whatever. The beat goes on for the greatest hockey player in the game today. Or maybe, just maybe, as we celebrate some AM on AM in the AM today, we do have to acknowledge his teammate and team captain, Mr. John Tavares, because what a special night for the guy they call JT. And Tavares wins it cleanly. Back to the point, it goes to Willie. Willie with a shot in on goal and deflected just wide. He'll get a second chance at the point of shot. Rebound in front of the goalie. Goal! Morgan Riley has tipped it in. And did John Tavares get the assist he did? The Leafs have tied the game. And the captain has 1,000 points to send the game to overtime. That's not bad, eh? Like, that's a pretty decent career in the National Hockey League. 1,000 points, one of less than 100 players to achieve that number of points in the game. And John Tavares and the Maple Leafs, unfortunately, though they tied the game with six seconds remaining, fell to the Islanders in overtime. But you know the way the goofy game works these days, right? You get to overtime, you get a point, even if you lose. But a 1,000 points for John Tavares, and he gets it in the building where it all started for him. He was a former New York Islander, don't you know, for nine seasons with the Islanders before signing with the Leafs. And I still enjoyed it. Like, I appreciate you, Islanders fans, I really do. You were booing heartily every time John Tavares touched the puck because you feel like a jilted lover. And you know what? I get it. I appreciate it. What a nice night for John Tavares. Unfortunately, the Leafs couldn't get the win, but that's okay. 
It's not the playoffs yet. And we know what usually happens come playoff time. Okay, a couple of uh, news and notes before we get to uh, who just might be the smartest counselor elected anywhere in this region. One of those news and notes, and I think we'll check in with our friends over in the Punky Doodles Corners area. Punky Doodles Corner. That's Corners. Anyway, we'll check in. Because as you heard during All News Mornings today, there is a plan. Wilmot Township is getting serious about exerting some influence around safety enhancements at Punky Doodles Corners. And so it should. The problem's going to be you've got too many other fingers in this pie, right? It would be great if one municipality could just say, this is what's going to happen. But you've got Perth, you've got Oxford, then you've got the township, then you've got the region. If we're going to do the roundabout, which it sounds like we want to do, that's the Cadillac option, so to speak, which is fine. I'm all for the safety improvements that come along, but now we've got the province involved, the Ministry of Transportation, and I can't even imagine how far down the road this is all going to come together. But there is no question that safety enhancements need to be implemented and implemented as soon as humanly possible at Punky Doodles Corner. So I I was at least heartened to hear the urgency with which Wilmot Council addressed this last night. Uh, From the township to the city of Waterloo and Jeff Uthit's story in this morning's Waterloo Region record, brace yourself. In fact, don't even brace yourself in Waterloo. Just stick your hand into your pocket and dig as deep as you can because get ready for a proposed tax increase this year of 7.5%, then 7.3% the year following, and 6.4% in 2026. So what do we got? 14, 8, 21.2% increases in the next three years to your taxes in Waterloo. Hoo-wee! That is a spicy meatball, as they say. And... As we move forward and look at this term of council, it will be the greatest tax increase in any term of Waterloo Council after 2007. That is a whole lot of cheddar. So just brace yourself for that as public consultations will get underway and the city of Waterloo moves in this direction. All right, from the township of Wilmot to the city of Waterloo and those tax increases to the city of Kitchener. I I love the Farwell household. My beloved is as interested in municipal councils and those town halls that Councillor Rob Deutschman organizes from time to time. She loves them. I mean, I, I see her watching them all the time. I think it's fantastic. And so we had the opportunity last night to listen in on a rather lengthy discussion at Kitchener City Council around automated speed enforcement, ASE, a.k.a. photo radar. And, and there's, a real, there's a real disconnect here between the city and the region because we know it's the regional government, our upper-tier municipal government, that is hell-bent on 175 speed cameras in the next five years in this community. And so really the upper-level 
of local government kind of foists this on the lower level and then the upper level controls all of it. And and the cities are kind of left and the townships would be kind of left with, well, I guess we get what we get because you say so, right? I don't love the dynamic that's at play here, but I was very intrigued by the comments made by Kitchener City Councilor for Ward 1, Scott Davey. And so intrigued was I that I wanted to share them with you this morning because I think what I'm hearing here makes an awful lot of sense, but you can judge for yourself. Here's Councillor Scott Davey at the Kitchener City Council meeting last night discussing automated speed enforcement in school zones. When I was canvassing, knocking on doors in city streets, people were not um, concerned about the people doing 40 and 50 on their roads. They were concerned about the people doing 60 and 70 and higher. And frankly, um, I think it's um, punitive uh, that we are seeing situations where people are getting speeding tickets for doing 41 kilometers an hour on Christmas Day. That is punitive. And if there's one thing that I've learned from our bylaws approach to bringing the community along, it's that we don't operate punitively to change behavior. I think it's also important to note in terms of the actual history and the problem that we're trying to solve. From two years ago, we went from 50 kilometers an hour down to 40 kilometers an hour, down to 30 kilometers an hour, and now we're talking about 30 kilometers an hour photo radar enforced. That is very, very quick, very fast, and the community is not coming along. Look at the number of complaints we've had with, I think, two or three photo radar locations in the city. Imagine when there's 73. That's what the region wants. They want 73. Can you imagine the blowback we're going to get? And I would remind you what happened with photo radar again with the province of Ontario. There was blowback, and the program got thrown out because we didn't bring the public along with it. And I would even point back to the city of Waterloo's decision just prior to the last election, to 30 kilometers an hour. They had to walk that back because they did not bring the community along. I think there's nothing stopping us from bringing it down from 40. 40 photoradar photoradar enforced, sorry, is very, very different from 40 that isn't photoradar enforced. Just watch the cars. And in the meantime, I would very, very much like to see it not be, I'd like to see a higher threshold outside of school hours. Like I think even, you know, 51 in the middle of the night um, in a school zone is is, is kind of silly to get a ticket, but we don't have that authority. So I think this motion strikes a balance and I'm hoping that there's some support. So I've just got one question for you now that you have heard that as well, because I heard that last night and this is what popped into my head. So here, here's my question for you this morning, okay? Is Kitchener City Councillor Scott Davey the smartest councillor anywhere in this region? Like, come on, listen to how much sense the man makes pointing to the failed photo radar experiment in the province going back almost 30 years now. There's a reason it was walked back, right? Talking about the speed with which we are moving forward. If we don't bring the public along in all of this, you're not going to get the buy-in that you need. And certainly, I mean, come on, smartest guy on any council anywhere. What on earth are we doing assigning a speeding ticket at 51 kilometers an hour in the middle of the night in a school zone? And all of that, all of that, and he hadn't even mentioned this part, which of course strikes at the very heart of the entire issue. And the data you showed us for for going back five years when the speed limit was 40, there was zero fatalities in school zones. Through the chair, correct. Okay, thank you. Thank you. For five years, 
zero fatalities in school zones. Yet, we talk about this photo radar program as if people were being run down, run over, crushed under the wheels of vehicles every single day. Honest to goodness, what are we doing here? I'll tell you what. It's not too late to walk it all back. Just walk it all back. I thought about this while I was listening in on this meeting last night. What are we doing? It's going to be revenue neutral. 175 cameras will pay for themselves with all of the speeding tickets that we're going to hand out. It's all about road safety. Vision zero, you know, zero fatalities on our roads. Listen to this again. And the data you showed us for for going back five years when the speed limit was 40, there was zero fatalities in school zones. Through the chair, correct. Okay. Zero fatality. We're already at vision zero. Just stop. Stop with the photo radar madness. Nobody's buying it. Nobody. And you shouldn't buy it either. Even if it is revenue neutral. Fine. Don't invest the revenue in the first place. Because there aren't the fatalities that you're trying to convince us there are. Oh, my goodness. It's not too late. It's not too late to walk back the entire program. Thank goodness for Kitchener City Councilor Scott Davey. At least somebody out there is thinking. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. So blinded was I by the brilliance of Kitchener City Councilor Scott Davey. I forgot to tell you where Kitchener City Council landed on all of the photo radar madness last night. I'm sorry about that. So if there is a school zone in the city of Kitchener that is already at 30 kilometers per hour, even absent a speed camera, it's going to remain at 30 kilometers per hour. Think Franklin Street in front of Franklin Public School as one example. So if it's 30 now, it's going to stay 30. School zones where automated speed enforcement is now installed or will be installed will be set at 40 kilometers per hour. And then if the city is able to gain some sort of authority over time of day speed limits or limiting ticketing outside of school hours, because see, this is where the region just kind of foists itself upon the cities. But if Kitchener can get control of that, it will get a report from city staff with details and recommendations on maybe, just maybe, doing the common sense thing here and and not ticketing at 2 o'clock in the morning in a school zone. But, I mean, for somebody doing 50, that's the idea. Anyway, that's where City Council in Kitchener landed last night. And I'll just remind the region, like right here, right now, if anybody, staff or elected, at our regional government is listening, it's not too late to walk back the whole program. This is, it's madness what you're doing. It's madness. All right. Doug is on the phone with us this morning. Good morning, Doug. Hello, Mike. Hello, Douglas. I, I called a little earlier. I wanted to hark back to the, the day that John Tavares signed with the Leafs. Sure. Do you, do you remember what was happening with the Islanders at that point in time? Uh, oh, yeah. Weren't they going to move to Brooklyn or something? No, they had a coaching change. Okay, then I, do, I didn't pay enough attention. Barry Trotz left Washington oh, and yeah. went to the New York Islanders, and he went there because Washington wouldn't give him what he wanted. When he found out that Tavares had signed with the Leafs, he actually had the gall 
he's the one that started all this mess with John Tavares because he <laughs> criticized him for, for, for giving for, for giving short shrift to the Islanders and going someplace else to get what he wanted. When that's exactly what he did. That just blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. Come little kettle calling the pot black. And, of course, the Islander fans, they're not going to miss any chance to, <laughs> to get rowdy and silly about something. It's just gone on so long, it's stupid. Oh, come on. You know? It's fun, Doug. you got to boo the guy that you jilted you, don't you? Well, I laugh. I laugh at the whole thing. But it's just, <laughs> it's, just, it's just gotten crazy. The thing was, they showed a guy giving him the finger after he scored his 1,000 points. That, to me, was, was, was bad. But the players were banging their sticks on the board, so it shows some class. Uh, real quick... Beaumont Township, I, I'll tell you, if they're going to do something with Punky Doodle's Farms, I drive it every day both ways. I, I don't know what it'll take. I don't know how long it'll take. I'm just glad it's going to happen because it is damn dangerous. I, I hate it. All right. It's regular every day. Dave, Doug, thanks, buddy. Stay safe out there. If you're driving Punky Doodle's Corners every day, and I know Doug's not alone in that, uh, I hope you have a very sound and paid-up insurance policy because that is a risk. I, listen, I I went through there late summer on a little motorcycle rip out to Stratford, and I'll tell you what, if I can find a way to avoid it, I will, because that is, you want to talk about madness, that whole area, it's just that confluence of roads under different municipal jurisdictions is an absolute dog's breakfast. So good on you. You're made of better stuff than me if you're driving it every day both ways, that is for sure. And we look forward to safety enhancements coming in the years. Unfortunately, that's how long it will take, but we'll get there. And Wilmot Council seems pretty serious about it. An update from the City News Centre is on the way. And then let's talk about doing here what Toronto did this past summer. And believe it or not, the sky didn't fall, not even on Toronto. It's time for a drink in the park, right? We'll talk about it next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. This is where today's topics turn into today's talking points. It's local and it's Democratic Radio at its finest. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. So therefore, be it resolved that staff be directed to investigate and develop criteria for a pilot project that would allow for open consumption of alcohol in Victoria Park or another suitable park location, as may be determined through the review, that meets such criteria with a report to council by the end of Q2 2024. The Mike Farwell Show continues on City News 570 and Rogers TV Cable 20. And that is Ward 3 Councillor in Kitchener, Jason Deneau, tabling his motion last night. So by the end of June of next year, staff would come back with a report that explores the possibility of allowing open alcohol in city parks within Kitchener. The man who tabled the motion joins us on the program this morning. Jason Deneau, good morning. Thank you for making time. Good morning, Mike. How are you today? I'm doing all right, thanks. How about you? I'm all right, thank you. I'm a little disappointed the Premier might steal my thunder, though. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about boot, you know, alcohol or beer in corner stores, but I'm just kidding. Well, you know, it's (laughs) funny, though, because I I heard something similar last night. Uh, I can't remember exactly what I was listening to, but then they posed the question, you know, should we be able to buy alcohol in more places, etc.? And I would at least liken that in similarity to what you're proposing, Jason. I think it's time we grew the H-E double hockey sticks up when it comes to our approaches to alcohol in this province, quite frankly. Yeah, and I and I agree with you, Mike, uh, 100%. I, you know, we 
we live in a, in a, in a world that, uh, you know, as our city, sorry, that is becoming more and more dense downtown. And, you know, lots of individuals don't have backyards. Uh, they don't have necessarily the biggest patios. They can't barbecue. They can't host. And, and so, you know, why not allow people to gather in the park, as we already do under special, you know, special permits, to have uh, to have a get together, you know, bring a little hibachi with some friends and and have a drink or two. I, I don't see the harm in it, and I think it's it's time that you know we follow. Um, you know, lots of, lots of European cities allow this, and, and you know we know Toronto did the pilot uh, last year, and you know two complaints out of 20, 27 parks, and so I think that 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 signifies that you know we are responsible enough as as adults to uh, to drink responsibly uh, in a park. When we have this conversation, Jason, we often look at Kitchener's signature park, Victoria, which I understand. But would this apply to parks beyond Victoria Park? Well, I, I think, you know, the uh, the staff have to bring back, you know, some criteria um, as, a, you know, to look at playgrounds, you know, uh, proximity to playgrounds or, or swimming pools. And so, you know, the idea initially is Victoria Park. Um, but if it, if it doesn't meet the criteria, then, then I think, you know, staff will bring back a suggestion for another park that may be trialed. You know, we have lots of parks across the city. Um, and, and when I think of Victoria Park, and I mentioned this last night, Victoria Park isn't a ward park. Well, it is in ward, I think, nine or ten. It's a city park, so everybody goes to Victoria Park. Um, but you know, the park down the street from me is a Ward Three park, and and so people living in other wards aren't coming to my park. So you know maybe it doesn't necessarily have to be Victoria Park. It could be one of the smaller parks in around uh, in around the suburbs. But uh, you know the idea was to start with with the bigger park and then see how it goes from there. I'll throw out a vote for uh, Brida Park with that beautiful picnic shelter. It would be another place. And I've seen those kinds of gatherings that you talked about a moment ago, Jason, where families get together, large extended families, do a little uh, barbecuing, etc. It's another great place. We have these beautiful open spaces, and this is just another way to enhance our enjoyment of them, I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, my, my family and I, we used to uh, do a, a yearly barbecue down in Queenston Heights. And so, you know, Set up the little barbecue, and, and front, you know, family would come from different parts of, of of Ontario, and and again, you know, we'd have a drink, but we had to, you know, we had to hide it because you know, bylaw doesn't allow us to have, you know, a can of beer or, or a glass of wine in the open, and so I think it's just any opportunity we can, I think, gather or get get people to gather, um, you know, because that was taken away from us for for a few years, and so. You know, I, I, I want the emphasis on family, friends, and community, and I think this, this helps with that. Do you worry at all about public drunkenness and other lewd behaviors that could be associated with this? Uh, you know, that's always in the back of your mind. But at the same time, you know, people drink in the bars. And if there are issues in the bars, you know, um, it's it, it's... It's really no different. I don't see it as any different. I don't think people are going to go to the, to the park and bring six or a two, four with them and just drink all day. I, I really don't think so. Um, but there's always that potential. And, and that's why, you know, we are working with, uh, you know, Waterloo Regional Police Services to, to kind of see where they are on board with it and, and, you know, try to navigate some of those concerns that, uh, that will be brought forward. How was your motion received by your fellow councillors last night? Uh, well, you know, they all voted for it unanimously. Um, you know, again, some questions around, 
you know, if you're in one part of the park, you know, can you walk to the other side of the other side of the park with, you know, with the beer? Um, and again, you know, diff- different things we have to really explore. Um, but yeah, you know, every uh, all of them were, were supportive of the motion, and uh, I believe uh, Councillor Ioannidis who said, you know, he believes this is this is going to be the way we go in the future. Um, and so, you know, I'm thankful for the support of of the mayor and council. And again, it's just a pilot. You know, if, if it doesn't work out, then we we don't do it. Uh, we don't proceed with it after the pilot. But if it works out, then you know what? It just allows more, uh, you know, people downtown the opportunity to gather. You have asked for that report, Jason, by the end of Q2, so the end of June 2024. Does that mean to say, should the report, you know, be something that council can endorse, that we may be moving into this pilot project as early as next summer? Yeah, so that's the intention for them, you know, to, to go away, bring back a report, and then, you know, I believe the uh, the timeline is July 1st to the end of October. And, and you know, and that may change a little bit, you know, may, may shorten that length of, of time. But, uh, you know, the hope is that it's in place for next summer um, just to see how it goes. And, and as I said, you know, we have, you know, beer and, and uh, craft beer and rib fest in the park. You know, we have Pride Fest where there's a little fence of, of alcohol. And so it's not that it's it's not done already in the park. It's already there. This is just, you know, a little bit... Um, a little step of actually allowing adults to, you know, be adults and and not have to be caged up in a uh, in a tent. Yeah, and and you talk about those licensed events that happen in parks and around the city and those sorts of things. But you also mentioned the family gatherings you'd have in Queenston Heights way back in the day, and you'd kind of you know conceal the can of beer you may be enjoying during that event. So if we're being honest here, are we? Are we not actually just kind of legalizing or creating bylaws around what's already happening? <laughs> you're, you know, and that's that's what you know. People say, "Well, I can't believe." I've had a few people say, "I can't believe you're 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 thinking about this." And, and I said to them, "It's already happening." Right. You know, we shouldn't have to, you know, uh, hide a glass of wine if you're sitting in the park while your kids are, you know, on the splash pad or playing in the uh, in the in the open field. Like you shouldn't have to do that as long as you're being responsible. Then, then that's all I'm looking for. Just be responsible, you know. Be be responsible adults in in monitoring, you know, your your consumption. Jason, I think it's a, an excellent uh, forward-thinking idea. I, I really do hope we can arrive at a place where we're experimenting with this pilot project next summer. Thanks for getting the conversation going. Thanks, Mike, and hopefully we can have a pint in uh, Victoria Park next year. You know what? Let's make a date for that, okay? If this works out, let's you and me meet and enjoy a a drink together in Victoria Park. That works for me. (laughs) All right, Jason, thanks again. Have a great day, Mike. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jason Deneau is the Ward 3 Councillor in the City of Kitchener. It was his motion endorsed unanimously by his fellow councillors last night because, of course, why wouldn't it be? And what we're going to see happen now is staff at the City of Kitchener will prepare a report for what this pilot project could look like, the parameters around it, etc. And if this moves forward, as I suspect that it will, then by next summer, we will be legally allowed. And I emphasize legally because, as Jason and I just acknowledged at the end of that conversation... We're not fooling anybody. This sort of thing is already happening, right? I brought up Bright Up Park because I've shared with you. It was just a couple of 
Father's Days ago, and it was during those times, by the way, where we couldn't get many places. So my beloved arranged for us to have a picnic that somebody was catering, right? So we went and picked up, did the takeout thing from the business that couldn't be open, and then we took it to Bright Up Park, and she... it was, And believe it or not, I'm not even making this up. Me, who really does enjoy more than an occasional... Nah, not more than an occasional, but I do enjoy my beer. And it was the first time I'd ever had one in a public park. But there we were to celebrate Father's Day, and not only did we have this lovely tray prepared by one of our local businesses, but she also brought a nice ice-cold beer. And I sat there like a grown-up at a picnic table with my family, and we enjoyed some nice food and a cold beverage on a beautiful June day. And why not? Why not? I, we know this has been happening, and I hinted to you that this was going to be coming to Kitchener in the not-too-distant future Toronto did the pilot project this past summer. You heard Jason say only two complaints. Come on, right? And this has been going on at West for a little bit. It is really about time we become a lot more because we're we are so far behind the times here in Ontario and and in Canada more broadly when it comes to our approach to alcohol. We need to loosen the heck up and be treated like and act like adults a whole heck of a lot more it also conjures for me this conversation one of my favorite stories about alcohol consumption in a city park but i'll I'll save that for after this break because i'd love to hear from you as well 519-570-2545 star 570 1-800-570-5715 i mean are you clutching your pearls over this oh my gosh the humanity that we're going to allow alcohol in city parks, come on, we're ready for this, right? But I'm happy to hear if you are concerned and we can have that conversation as well. I think it's about ding-dang time, but very happy to hear from you, either if you're ready for this or maybe just the time that you did and the sky didn't fall on you either. We continue the conversation about alcohol in our city parks. Be a part of it. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. This is going to be the way we go in the future. And so I'm thankful for the support of the mayor and council. Again, it's just a pilot. If it doesn't work out, then we don't do it. We don't proceed with it after the pilot. But if it works out, then you know what? It just allows more people downtown the opportunity to gather. Yes, let's gather. Let's have a drink together in a city park. That was Jason Deneau, Ward 3 councillor in Kitchener, who last night tabled a motion asking that city staff put together a report to look at what a pilot project for open alcohol in city parks could look like. That report coming back in June, which means by July, and I suspect we'll get here, by July we could be enjoying a beverage of our choice in a city park. What do you think of this idea? 519-570-2545, star 570, 
1-800-570-5715. Curtis, good morning. Morning. Uh, just a few things to say. Just scrap this pilot. Scrap any more thoughts on what it can do or what it isn't going to do. And get out of the Stone Ages. Everywhere else in the world, you can have a drink at a park. It's ridiculous that they're even spending time thinking about this. Just do it. Anybody who wants to drink at whatever hour of the day is going to do it, regardless if you do a pilot or if it's not approved or whatnot. Stop wasting taxpayers' dollars on thinking about it. We're wearing horse blinders in this country for many things. As you said, treat us like adults and we'll act like it. Curtis, I think you're spot on. And and unfortunately, like I'm not going to uh, malign the city for going through this process because unfortunately we have to. That's the way. You're absolutely right, though. Horse blinders, archaic. I mean, we are so far behind the times. And I agree again with you, Curtis. Treat us like adults. We'll act like adults, right? That's par- part of the problem with the laws around alcohol as they are today. You pen us up in these designated areas at festivals, events, etc. And, you know, it, it's almost like, oh, look at look at over there. Those are the people who drink the booze. Oh, and then if you want to get back with the rest of the people in the rest of the park, you got to pound them back. And it's just all kinds of things. And if you make it such a taboo product, well, then it's, you know, illicit and exciting and we we try to get around the rules that are that govern it it's just goofy treat us like adults watch watch how adult like we actually behave george good morning yeah good morning mike i was in portugal this last summer and mike you wouldn't believe it families having great times children playing right there beside them kicking a ball around you know, they'd be drinking a glass of wine or beer, and it was peaceful, it was kind, and it was just a very beautiful setting. Something else Jason said really struck, uh, struck with me, and as our cities become more intensified and we don't have those backyards and we don't have those areas, city parks become very important then, and you want people to meet and gather and be respectful, of course, of one another, but let them enjoy their time together. Really well said, George. Bingo, bango, bongo on the density, right, that we've created, especially in downtowns. We're putting all these tall buildings up. Those city parks are going to become more and more important. You don't have a backyard. You might not have any green space at all at your building. So what's your green space going to be? Oh, it's going to be the city park. I mentioned before the break one of my favorite stories around this, and Again, I also told you that it was like maybe two summers ago that I did this for the first time in the city of Kitchener, anywhere in Ontario. I'd never had a drink publicly other than on my own property. Of course, I'd gone to events where you could have alcohol and I sat in the cage with everybody else and had my drink or whatever, but I'd never illegally... I use with air quotes, gone out and and had a drink in a park until just a couple of years ago on that Father's Day experience. One of my good friends told me the story of years ago. So he always had a, uh, was it a Canada Day party? May 2, 4, whatever. He he always had a, a long weekend party. Let's just say it was Canada Day. I don't think it was, but anyway, doesn't matter. The point is his old home was so near, like, a stone's throw, almost literally, from Bright Up Park. So they got together, 
They would have the party. It would eventually spill out of the backyard. Hey, let's go over to the park, hit some balls, play some, you know, play some catch, whatever. So a whole group of them leave the house and wander on over to the park, and they took a cooler, cooler bag with them. And now they're up right up park, and they're having some fun, just playing some scrub and whatever. It's a beautiful summer's day. You're having a party that spills out of the backyard over to the park that's a stone's throw away, and you've got some alcohol. Now, in fairness, because you're having a good time and you might have had a pop or two, it gets a little bit louder. This is the middle of the day, by the way. You know, so there's some hooting and there's some hollering, and somebody noticed what was going on and placed a call. And the next thing you know, my buddy and his friends get a visit from a member of our Waterloo Regional Police Service. And I wish I could remember the name of the officer because I was relating this story to former police chief Brian Larkin. And he said right away, that was so-and-so. And he was right. But that was just this approach of this particular officer. And so he shows up and the pickup game of baseball dies down a little bit because the uniformed officer is there and there's a little conversation. And of course, he sees that there's a cooler of beer there and he says, guys, how many of you drove to the park today? Nobody. We just walked from that house over there, right? Okay, let's try to keep the volume down a little bit and make sure you get back home safely. Isn't that the way it should be? (laughs) Like, honestly, isn't that the way it should be? And you just heard George talk about being in Portugal and seeing people enjoying a drink in the park while kids are playing soccer nearby, right? We can do this. Yeah, maybe sometimes the volume of our voices go up. I don't need my, I don't need a, a, a drink on the show for my voice to go up sometimes if I get animated about something. So anyway, this is long overdue. It's long overdue everywhere in this country, quite frankly, across North America My eyes were opened, and it took me a long time to get there. But about 10 years ago, when I took my first ever trip over to Europe, and I went through Germany and Austria and a few other places, and uh, I met a friend along the way, and he he took me down to this place because he was living in Luxembourg, at least part-time. And he had this place that he loved to go, down by the water, on a park bench. So we were in town. We go to this shop, we pick up a sandwich and a bottle of Heineken, a bottle no less too, it was glass. And and down to the water we go and we can just sit there, enjoy our lunch, enjoy our beer and go about the rest of our day afterwards. And from that moment on, I've been wondering what on earth has taken us so long. So chop chop with the chip chop, as I like to say, let's move on this and move on it quickly. I'm glad to see Kitchener moving in this direction. By this summer, by next summer, pardon me, we can be adults in Kitchener. How much fun is that going to be? All right, we've got an update from the City News Centre coming up. And then, as you probably know, our housing minister in Ontario has asked heads of council, mayors, chairs, etc., to let them know if they need more land to build more homes in their communities so we can meet these aggressive targets to get to 1.5 million homes by 2030 in this province. The mayor of Cambridge has submitted her list and it's got the endorsement of council. We'll talk to Cambridge Mayor Jan Liggett next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. I just got an email from Mark to Mike at 570news.com. 
He says, do you have a rookie on the board today? Let me tell you something about Devin Robertson, that guy on the board, on the other side of the glass. He's one of the best, okay? And he cares. He cares passionately. And if you could see his face. So, uh, listen, I'm I'm not going to pull any punches. I'm going to tell you how it is. And it's a computer issue. And clearly, there's not nearly enough sense of urgency to get it fixed. So, I I wish I could help. I wish I could do better. I know it's difficult to listen to. I'm going to I'm going to beg you. Just hang in there. Okay? We're we're doing the best that we can with what we've got right now, which isn't a whole lot. These computers have a mind of their own. There's a gremlin in the system somewhere and allegedly somewhere somebody is working on it. I haven't the foggiest about that. But I promise you this is not human error. We care so much about this show, Devin and I, we really do. So, I know it's a little bit odd on the ears, but hang in there, okay? Because we're giving you the best that we've got, and uh, the machines are really letting us down this morning. So hopefully this can be rectified sooner rather than later. But it's not somebody asleep at the switch. It's the computer that I have no idea what it's doing. I, Devin's pretty much figured out what the computer's doing already because he's a genius. But we just have to now make the computer stop doing what it's doing and help us keep this show on track. The conversations are spot on. I can promise you that. And when you phone, we've got instant response there so we can keep having our conversations. And this one is going to move into the city of Cambridge and look at lands where the city would like to develop. The housing minister, Paul Calandra, sent a letter to all municipalities asking heads of council, do you want more land? Do you need more land to build on so that you can meet your targets and we can get to those 1.5 million homes we need by 2030, 2031. And in Cambridge, Mayor Jan Liggett said, yes, yes, we do need some more lands. And she has been endorsed, her pitch to the province, by the entirety of council save one. Only Ross Earnshaw was a little concerned about uh, where these lands were coming from. But Mayor Liggett joins the conversation here on the show this morning. And can we just start with the need for more land for more housing. Why, Mayor Liggett, did you feel that the city needed that? Well, a question of need was one thing, but the um, one of the other things that I had to look at was the timing that it's going to take in order to prepare for that next step of need. So, um, for instance, the area that is um, uh, just inside the countryside line, the largest block, we have to prepare which we already have plans for, but this gives us the time to do it properly, uh, master environmental study plan and um, uh, transport, a major transportation plan. Uh, as everybody in the region knows who comes into that whole area of the city, it's bumper to bumper now. I don't think the proper plans were in place to accommodate the kind of traffic that we have had coming and going out of Cambridge and those trying to take shortcuts. So this this will give us the time to put those all in place before any planning applications are are, uh, being dealt with for the future. Um, The other, one of the other parcels is up at that area of the city uh, is connected to the lands where there's going to be expansion of up by the airport. Uh, Again, that allows us to prepare for that. these are areas that are all within the countryside line. Nothing was placed outside of the countryside line. So 
we're still adhering to what the region has put in until 2051. We're not disallowing any of that um, of that land. Uh, it was a matter of do we? So the the province did not say that if you know that they'll take any of it out. They never said they'd put any of it in. They, this is stuff they put in, and then they changed their mind on whether they would do it or not. And as we know, this government seems to change its mind fairly regular, and that's not always a bad thing. But um, I don't know that they're going to agree with what I have done here or whether they're going to disagree. But I was asked to do something, which I did, and we'll wait and see. We'll see. wait and see whether another shoe drops or not. Has the back and forth or the indecisiveness on the part of the province made this more difficult on Cambridge than it needs to be? Uh, it's made it definitely more difficult. We're, you know, like all municipalities in the province, we're still waiting for all the um, regulations on Bill 23, whether that's actually going to happen, when it's going to happen. So we're kind of at a standstill. We're frozen on that. Uh, and and that's really um, not fair to our staff uh, throughout the province. They're they're not knowing which way to turn. So it's business as usual, which could all go down the drain uh, once that is enacted. Hopefully, they'll make that decision soon. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that um, are not happy with this government. And I, you know, even though people accuse me of different things, I truly am nonpartisan. I learned my lesson a long time ago, and, and you know, not to be part of any party or swayed by any party. One thing that I can say, you know, love them or like them, this particular government, when they are brought to task about things that people consider are are, uh, beyond the pale with legality, and and rightfully so, uh, they do do an inner reflection, whether it is based on the number of votes they're going to get in the next election, and perhaps there's some soul-searching. I don't know. I don't know the players. I know that it's a small circle of players. I don't know who they are, so I can't say personally, yes, they did soul-searching, but I would say a lot of it had to do with vote vote counts. Uh, they do reflect back and say, okay, we've made a mistake, and we're willing to own it, and we're willing to correct it. And that's really something for any elected party or elected official to say, that's a very difficult thing for anybody to admit. But I think if you have made a mistake, you know you've made a mistake for whatever reason, own it and change it. You mentioned earlier as well, Mayor Leggett, that these lands that you're talking about, which are parcels uh, in in North Cambridge, Middle uh, Middle Block Road, uh, east of Riverbank, and also north of Middle Block, and South Kasut, that's where you mentioned out by the airport. But these were all within what the region had put in its official plan up until 2051. So the city here and the region are kind of working in tandem on this. There's no overriding the other. I would say so. I don't think the region had expected these lands to come um, come to play so so soon. But none of us have expected that. I think it's important that we are ready and prepared and that our long-term infrastructure goals are in place. I can't tell you how many developers approach me. I even now, and it's the first time I've ever heard of this, I have lobbyists for developers approaching me. Very similar to the Greenbelt. I've never seen that before in our municipality. 
Uh, I won't meet with the lobbyists. I do regularly meet with developers. They show me what their plans are, uh, what their thoughts are. Some of these are outside of the countryside line, and I'm very clear with them. This is not happening. These lands are to be protected till 2051, and uh, I ask them to to take that away because I'm not. I just don't promise. And in this decision that I had to make, I had been meeting with developers prior to the province giving sending that letter, and um, I I hear everybody out, and it, you know whether it's good or bad or ugly, I still hear them out. I give you know me. I'm I'm very open and honest, and sometimes I'm pretty brutal. Um, I, I give them my honest opinion on what I think can happen and when it potentially can happen. So when I had to make this decision, when the letter came in, I stopped all meetings and calls with developers because I didn't want them in, like, earworms in my, in my head. I knew I needed to make a, a decision that was for the best uh, – um, a decision that was best for this community – and I could only make it with our planning staff advising me and bringing stuff to my, my attention that I didn't know. Um, and then I had to weigh all that. And we had meet meetings back and forth with the city manager, planning staff, myself. And then I would go away. I would, I would think about it. And then I'd come back with more questions. It was, it was a process that took a while. But it had to happen quickly because the letter just came the beginning of November. And that letter, of course, from the provincial housing ministry directed to heads of council, mayors such as yourself, mm-hmm. to make these decisions or offer these recommendations to the ministry. How did council receive the idea? Well, some of the councillors had approached me prior to uh, the meeting, um, and uh, I spoke with them. I pointed things out, and I told them where I was, but I didn't tell them any of my final decisions because I hadn't made the final decision. I didn't make the final decision till uh, the Friday before, uh, which set our clerk's department and printing department back because they couldn't get it out to, to the to uh, council as quick as they would have liked to get it. But, but I was still, you know, it's a it's a horrible decision to have to make, you know, and how a city grows. And if you make a mistake, it's it's done. I mean, there's there's no going back on that. So I. I, I was still weighing it all on Friday, and I made that decision Friday. But like I said at the end of council, my I still had two days before I had to give that um, that uh, decision, send it off to the minister. Uh, so I, you know, after I, I just asked council for their endorsement for where I where I was at that point in time, where my decision making process had come to, but I still thought I might change my mind. I didn't do that, but I, it still took me another two days before that. They went late in the game on, on uh, Thursday afternoon. Are you happy with where you've landed? I'm happy where, I, where I've landed. I, I still have um, thoughts about the one area. Uh, so when, when um, these parcels are done, they're based on, uh, excuse me, they're based on the property lines. Of, of uh, so they don't take a line and go in the middle through somebody's property. So some of those lands I would have liked to have been cut in half, but I didn't have that option. So, uh, but I, it still it works out. It'll still all be part of the transport master transportation plan and the environmental plan as well. And I'm very happy about the lands up at the airport. And um, you know, I I did ask for lands uh, in in other areas south of. 
Cambridge, uh, the southern portion of Cambridge that had not been part of that process, I asked for them to be considered as well because I think those are where we could do some um, high-rise apartments for uh, density. Do you know when you'll hear back on those lands in particular? No. There's no indication to anybody of when the province is going to come back with any of this stuff. And like I said, they may just decide to they're abandoning the whole thing and just go with what RAPA 6 was originally intended for. Right. Okay. Uh, Before I let you go, Mayor Leggett, you obviously wear uh, two hats. As the mayor of Cambridge, you also sit on regional council. And I know a decision was made there last week on the southern terminus for phase two of light rail, which has been agreed upon as the Ainsley Street Terminal. I know that wasn't your preference as this work was underway, but why did you land there? Um, I landed there because it's not a terrible location. I think it's the wrong location. Um, and it, when I, when I uh, look at the chain, that terminus wasn't the original terminus for the downtown core. I would have fought bitterly to stop it if it, if it had gone to the other one, which would have been at the foot of the pedestrian bridge uh, in downtown Galt. But because a developer took the um, filed a, a, a appeal at the OLT, and this isn't a well-known fact, but they took the region uh, to the OLT to get that terminus changed. Uh, so there was a settlement uh, hearing. And so that's how the terminus got changed from the foot of the pedestrian bridge to the bus terminal, which is where I thought it should have gone in the first place before we started the major development in, in the south of Gold. The, you know, these things should be a, 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 like, a, you know how the regional official plan is a, it's a living document because you make amendments to it all the time. The LRT has been a living document to a point, uh, you know, when the region realizes, okay, some things have changed, therefore we need to change what we've done. Uh, and I think that's what they should have done and taken it to the other um, direction down the middle of Cambridge, down to the south of Galt. How high a priority is it for you that phase two of LRT get completed in its entirety, that full stretch from Fairview Mall and Kitchener to that southern terminus? Um, I prefer to see a GO train actually coming into Cambridge, but that's another whole story altogether. <laughs> but, uh, but the, um, you know, with the cost of the LRT, so the original leg, I'm just trying to remember, it was just under a billion dollars. I, I was in regional council as a, as a, a just a regular resident on another matter the night that that was voted on, however, what there, I forget, what was it, 20 years ago? Um, and it was uh, 100 and. 70 million, if I remember right. No, hang on, let me think. Uh, yeah, 100, 170 million. Now we're at 4.5 billion. And uh, it's expected that the province and the federal government pay for that. We'll see. You know, we don't know what priorities are going to be around in the world at the time that that, that comes to uh, a vote decision making by those levels of government. But certainly the residents of this region will not be able to pay for that. Uh, so if you're talking about priorities, I'd rather see all of that money put into um, supportive and affordable housing, uh, low-income housing, uh, and uh, do what's best for the residents who, who are struggling right now. But that that's a totally different decision. <laughs> that's like saying 
that a, a person who's a traffic police officer should go to a homicide scene. <laughs> that, that's not truly their job. That's not where the best services of the police tax dollars should go. You know, you, you have to separate those things out. Um, but as far as the business of the downtown core, um, there's there's something to be said for that argument. Uh, and I, I always try to keep an open mind when I have delegates. Sometimes I've really, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about something. And when delegates up get up there, I think, oh, okay, they don't know the whole story behind thinking because the thinking of process here because we may have closed door meetings where more information comes to us that helps us in our decision-making. And that actually happens quite frequently around the, around the horseshoe, particularly at the region. Uh, so there's just some things that, that um, I know are, are happening. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm in flux on this one. Uh, I made the decision. I voted it for it because, like I said, uh, I wanted it to be unanimous. I didn't want it to look like we were all fighting amongst ourselves for this. I, you know, um, I, I, I have to do what's best for Cambridge in the long haul. Mayor Liggett, I appreciate your time on these issues today. Thank you very much for joining the show. You're quite welcome. Thanks for asking me. Cambridge Mayor Jan Liggett about the new lands that the city of Cambridge needs to build housing and that southern terminus for Phase two of light rail. Why bog down the process at this point? Whether she loves the ultimate destination of Ainsley Street or not, the most important thing is keeping the project moving forward. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. They do reflect back and say, okay, we've made a mistake and we're willing to own it and we're willing to correct it. And that's really something for any elected party or elected official to say. That's a very difficult thing for anybody to admit. But I think if you have made a mistake, you know you've made a mistake for whatever reason, own it and change it. Could call it flip-flopping or indecisiveness or listening and then responding to what you've heard. Nonetheless, that's Cambridge Mayor Jan Liggett talking about the letter from Ontario's housing minister, Paul Calandra, asking cities, hey, do you need more land to build on? Cambridge has said yes, and Mayor Liggett explains to us why. We are fast approaching 10.30 and an update from the City News Centre. And then a pay-it-forward story that is happening as we speak. And I say... You know, I make it modern like that. I modernize it because of the old movie, I'm sure you'll remember, Pay It Forward. Haley Joel Osment was in it, right? With uh, Helen Hunt, Kevin Spacey. Was Kevin Spacey in that one? Yeah, I think it was. Anyway, remember the movie? Well, the whole idea uh, still continues, and and dare I say it thrives. Uh, A restaurant in a small town just outside of Ottawa starts this prepaid meal idea and it has swept the province like a tsunami i think it's a really cool story i hope you do too we'll share it next on the mike farwell show this is city news 570 and rogers tv One of those stories that's just too good not to share. 
Well, this is one of those stories, and I'm absolutely blown away by how far it's spread. I wonder if the fellow who owns the pub where it all originated is just as amazed as I am at the reach of this little, I'll say, idea. Let's find out, shall we? Corey Brum is the owner of the Nelson Street Pub in the beautiful community of Pembroke, Ontario, and joins us for a chat. Corey, thank you very much for making the time. Good morning. For sure. Hey, Mike. Good morning. <laughs> so you, you, I guess, had this idea to offer patrons of your restaurant the opportunity to prepay a meal for someone in need. Does that kind of sum up where, you know, where this all started? Yeah, I seen it on a small post in the U.S. a few years years back, but I thought in these times right now, we should bring that here locally to Ontario and Canada. Okay, so what happened when you hatched this plan and began making the offer to your customers? So honestly, I printed off two pieces of paper and said these meals are prepaid. And if you're in need of uh, a meal, a hot meal, and just take uh, take it off the board that's been paid for, and hand, hand it to your server, and your meal will, will be ready. So, and it started off as two pieces of paper being printed, and now it's reached <laughs> an insane amount of people. It's wild. Yeah, it's it's crazy. The number, like I read this on the front page of my newspaper here in Waterloo Region yesterday. The Waterloo Region record. It's gone as far as Stratford here locally for us and even around the world restaurants have kind of hopped on this idea yeah it's gone for us I mean I got a call from someone in Tokyo (laughs) offering to give money to buy meals for people in Pembroke in need like I can't believe that so those first two pieces of paper that you posted on this board Corey they were from you as as the restaurant owner, here's a couple of meals I'm putting up for anybody yep. who might need it? Exactly. Oh, okay. And then how does a customer, like, do they determine what the meal is or do they just give you a certain amount of money? And, like, how does that work? They usually uh, choose a meal. Okay. And say, I want to buy a hamburger and fries for whoever is in need. Um, if not, they give, like, 25 bucks, 50 bucks, and I put up, like, the most common meals that will... You know, please everyone. Um, so cold sandwiches, burgers, cuisines, and stuff like that. And also, our staff, um, kitchen staff, get a free meal after their shift. So some of them have even gone as far as donating their meals to go on the board. Really? So they won't take the free meal that they get for working there. They'll donate theirs to the board as well. Exactly. Absolutely incredible. You Did you share this on social media or did somebody else? I shared it on my page, which I got a good reach. About I used to get around, you know, 200,000 before this. And now we're, we're reaching 11.9 million. million. <laughs> 11.9 million people reached from this yeah. one post from this uh, little pub in Pembroke, Ontario. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> I've been in so many interviews, I feel like a celebrity or something right now. You kind of are. I mean, this is, like, honestly, to the, like, how does it feel, Corey, to, to see how well this has worked? Um, it's very humbling. I mean, I know I'm, I'm helping people who need it the most, and that's the best part. 
especially around the season, it's very humbling to see um, people donating and meeting the people who come in too and get the meals. And I talk to all of them, and they're in tears or they might need some help with something else, and I help them out. Um, the one lady I seen came for a meal, and I seen her in our local metro, and she was trying to buy food. So she was putting food on the counter to buy and take stuff away because she didn't afford it all. And I said, hey, I remember you. Um, how about I buy your card? She's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I'll buy all your food. And it was her birthday. Her husband just died. So that's why she can barely afford food and mental health problems too after that. So it's amazing I can reach those people and be part of that community of people too, not just the ones who can afford to come in and spend lots of money because everyone deserves, you know, to be part of something. So it's not just a hot meal. It's coming in, sitting down in a nice place and music playing, TVs going, and the hustle and bustle of a restaurant. They feel like they're finally a part of something and not, you know, pushed away in society. What's it like, Corey, for the folks who come in who are in need? What's the process like for them, and, and how have they responded to this offer? Well, right now, well, when I put it up, it was just, uh, it said the meals are prepaid, take a ticket, give it to your server, don't say anything, just sit down, and your meal will be read out to you. Um, there's been a high demand of meals, <laughs> um, and definitely people in need. I've spoken to them and heard their stories, and I uh, understand why they're so many people. Um, so now we've limited it to one ticket per person because we want to be fair and make sure everyone gets fed when they need it. This is this is really a story, I think, of community coming together. It's almost like a, a restaurant-style food bank to a degree, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You, you, no, it's awesome. You I mean, meant- I've had city council members donate stuff, money towards meals. I've had local businesses donate money towards meals. It's amazing. Why did you decide this was something you wanted to do in the first place? You you mentioned that you had, you know, heard this story about this restaurant in the States, but mm-hmm. why did you decide that this was something that you wanted to, to do at the Nelson Street Pub? Well, I know how hard times are. I mean, I might own a business, but I'm no better off than anyone else. I'm struggling with bills and food myself. And I think of my my mother and growing up, and she's on disability, so we only got, like, the bare minimum and couldn't go to eat ever in my childhood. And, you know, right now she's using the food bank because she can't afford food sometimes. And due to the Using mass, she's getting canned food, and that's not the best for your health. Now she has MS, so she needs a healthy diet, but she can't afford it. So this is why I kind of thought, like, more people than her need this. Like, if people come in for a burger and a salad or something, they can get healthy produce and meat, which is something that the food banks cannot offer. So I want to be the difference. Is it hard to keep track of? You know, if people are prepaying uh, and you've got these tickets that are prepaid and all of that stuff, is it is it difficult at all? Um, it can get 
difficult sometimes. <laughs> but I mean, we make it work, and we've gotten into the flow now, so it's kind of easy. Yeah. I think it's absolutely fantastic, and considering how far it's spread, uh, you know, almost yeah. 12 million people from that initial post. That's incredible yeah, stuff. Yeah, from, from Tokyo to, i seen a post in Jamaica, Sri Lanka, BC, like, it's insanely, it's going, like, viral. Corey, congratulations on starting something so incredible, and uh, keep up the great work at the Nelson Street Pub. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining the show. Take care. For sure. Bye-bye. Corey Brum is the owner of the Nelson Street Pub in Pembroke. He had heard this idea from a restaurant in the States some time ago and thought, you know what? Times are tough. Times aren't exactly easy for Corey, as you heard him say, but he is able to put food on the table. He is able to operate his restaurant. And he thought, what about this for an idea? And so he comped the first two meals, put the tickets on the board and said, take this ticket, hand it to your server, no questions asked, your meal will be prepaid. His customers caught on, they wanted to prepay a meal for somebody too. He posts it on social media and now, a month or so later, he has reached almost 12 million people with that single post And thanks to Robert Williams' story in yesterday's Waterloo Region record, uh, we learn that this has spread far and wide across the province, including to Joe's Diner in Stratford, where there's a great picture of the board there and all of the prepaid meal tickets. Uh, It's it's incredible. And I, I just go back to the movie that's almost 30 years old now, Pay It Forward. And to think that we're still doing something like this today and it's still so successful speaks to me to the power of community to how we've got each other's backs out there despite what you might think from time to time and i don't know i i just think this is one of the the coolest things and if anything is going to go viral that's not kim kardashian or taylor swift like this is the kind of stuff that needs to go viral right (laughs) i think it's fantastic i have on occasion, being known, but I haven't done it in so long because I, I rarely find myself at the coffee drive through But that was a thing for me at times in the past. You know, you'd get to the front of the drive through line, you say, hey, whatever the next bill is, I'm going to pick it up so that when that person gets to the window, they get the treat. Oh, I don't have to hand over my $2.10 or whatever it was that bill was that day. I've never quite gone this far, but I think it's pretty awesome, and I would certainly consider it. We talk about that all the time when we're dining out. You know, we're lucky enough to be able to do that. Maybe you leave a meal behind for somebody else. Have you ever paid it forward? Have you ever been on the receiving end of somebody who paid it forward to you? Give them a shout out. Tell us where it happened and what it felt like. And if you know a restaurant that's involved in this, like are you a patron of Joe's Diner in Stratford or any other local restaurants that are getting on board with this prepaid meal idea would love to hear your pay it forward story 519-570-2545 star 570 and 1-800-570-5715 pay it forward on the mike farwell show this is city news 570 and rogers tv 
it's amazing I can reach those people and be part of that community of people too, not just the ones who can afford to come in and send lots of money. Because everyone deserves to be part of something. So it's not just a hot meal. It's coming in, sitting down in a nice place and the hustle and bustle of a restaurant. They feel like they're finally a part of something and not, you know, pushed away in society. I don't know if you can remember that far back, but the voice you heard was that of Corey Brum, who's the owner of the Nelson Street Pub in Pembroke. And he came across an old story about a restaurant in the States that had launched a pay-it-forward program many years ago. And what Brum thought he could do is resurrect the idea at his restaurant, the Nelson Street Pub in Pembroke. And so he printed off two pieces of paper and said, here's your prepaid meal ticket. And he posted them on the bulletin board at his restaurant. And the offer was to anyone who was in need of a meal, please take the prepaid ticket off the board, sit down at a table, make yourself comfortable, hand it to the server, and your meal will be right out to you. And his customers latched on to the idea. So that board that began with two pieces of paper attached to it began to fill up. And it got fuller and fuller and fuller. And then Corey Brum posted a picture on his social media platforms. And that original post has now reached almost 12 million people. And not only that, with the millions of people reached by that post... He has heard from restaurants all around the world that have now gotten into the prepaid meal ticket act, including Joe's Diner in the beautiful festival city of Stratford, just down the road from us here in the region of Waterloo. As I said before the break, if anything is going to go viral, it's something like this. I absolutely love the story. I love the idea. I remember the movie. I think you do, too. It makes so much sense on the surface if everybody just paid it forward imagine what a wonderful world this would be and lots and lots of people are now paying it forward and i think it's terrific and i wonder if you've got a pay it forward story either you were the one that paid it forward or you were on the receiving end of something paid forward for you i've only ever gone so far as to pick up a tab at a coffee drive through And, you know, there have been times where it's like, oh, they're getting six sandwiches. And I'm like, whatever. I said I was going to pick it up. But really, we're talking, you know, whatever the case was. Might have been 20 bucks one time. Anyway, leaving a prepaid meal behind at your favorite restaurant. And if you know of a restaurant that's doing this, please do let me know. Because I think it's super cool that so many people have gotten involved in this. Jody, good morning. Hi, I've never really had anyone pay for my meal that I can remember, but I know the food bank and the those meal places like the Vineyard and the Trinity they used to have there really helped me a lot along my way. Um, and there's people that have also given me like donations and gifts of money and throughout the years and uh, you know that have really helped me come along. And I'm 47 now, so. They didn't make me starve to death or anything, but it sure sounds nice that someone would, you know, help someone out to get 
help them get by, you know. I'm happy to hear that, Jody, and I'm glad that folks are helping you along the way. And you're a 47-year-old survivor, and you're going to keep on trucking, that's for sure. The Cambridge Neighborhood Table comes to mind for me as well. These ideas of community meals where we can gather as a community, whatever our place in that community, coming together over a meal is a really special shared experience. I I truly believe that. And I just think this is a a fantastic program. And, And the more restaurants and the more people that get involved in this, the better, because it's just a terrific way to help out somebody in your community that otherwise might not have that warm meal that day. And the restaurants that are involved in providing this as well, I think it's great. Pat, good morning. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Not too bad. Oh, my gosh, Mike. I would. I have about two minutes because I'm going into the doctor's, but I have a, people were so kind to myself and my kids when I was on my own. Holy crumb. And when I, if I go out and back before then, I was 12 when her mom died. There were six of us. And Aura Automobiles came in one day um, in this beautiful big black car. We don't remember a whole lot about it, but they had this fabulous car. And they had gifts for us, how they got our name. Or, I mean, our mom had died, I don't know, a few months before. And it was our first Christmas without her. And it was, um, like, I remember that like it was yesterday. And then when I was on my own with my kids, um, people were incredibly, incredibly kind. Um, Just... You know, they knew, somebody knew my son needed a suit for graduation. And, like, I could write a book on the blessings that people have done for me. And so, I mean, I I do what I can. Um, Something I do, I had a son that died. And so every year on his birthday, I find somewhere or something or somebody I can give something to in in honor of Matthew. And um, I have a son that works with... um, men mostly men that really struggle financially and so at christmas i will say here take these gift cards and you know who to give them to and so i mean do i can i pay it forward and as much as i've been given no i probably can't um or i'm not able to um but i i'm so grateful for what people have done for our family and and our community if you think about it so and you do pay it forward in, in the way that you can which is also terrific Anyways, bless you, Mike. Thanks a ton for all you do. Thank you, Pat. It's lovely to hear from you, and what a great story. Th- those those memories are indelible. They will never leave. And, and even though Pat doesn't think she could ever pay back everything she's been given, she gives what she can. Uh, we're here for each other. We really are. Don't forget that, especially at this time of year. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. There is a proposal in the city of Guelph to build hundreds of new homes in the South End, some of which would be affordable. It's going to take some work on the part of council to make the necessary zoning changes, etc. But the plan, on its face anyway, sounds really interesting to me, especially, of course, the affordable component. The nonprofit organization that would be managing this development is known as Home Opportunities. Its president and CEO is Mike Labay, and he joins us for a chat. Mike, good morning. 
Good morning, Mike. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to talk about housing anytime, anywhere. I am so glad to hear that, and be careful what you wish for, because we talk about it an awful lot on this show, so I might just keep you on speed dial. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Can you share with us, first of all, what Home Opportunities as an organization does? Yeah, Home Opportunities is a development and marketing consulting nonprofit organization. Uh, We used to call them resource groups back in the 1980s. We provide the expertise to nonprofit cooperatives composed of eventual owners of a condominium to build their own homes. And, And so how would you work on this project specifically in Guelph to help people attain these newly built homes? So in essence, with Guelph, we've got a very specific focus on low-income workers in the city. Um, And so the intent is to start the process of the approvals, which we effectively started at council. And so we looked like a developer during those times. As we move the approval process through, we coordinate with the architect, we coordinate with the planners. And at the same time, we'll be talking to employers uh, such as Linamar, about their staff being able to live in the city rather than having to commute in. And we'll work with them in order to identify staff that wish to purchase. So it's not a broad-based uh, marketing approach. It's a very focused and targeted approach. So we're happy to hear from anybody who wants housing, but we will be focusing on people that are commuting into town that would like to live there or are renting and would prefer to own. So in this particular case, we're looking at just under a 1,000 units of housing in Guelph's south end. Of those roughly 1,000 units, Mike, how many would be deemed affordable? Now, that's a definitional thing. Um, so 30% of them will be owned by people whose income is lower than the incomes that qualify for affordable rental. That's important to us that we provide a substitute for affordable rental and then Another 30% will be just $15,000 a year higher than that. Then another 20%, which tends to be called attainable, uh, would be 15000 higher. And then uh, 20% goes to anybody who wants to buy. Obviously, if you're doing such a big development, you want to have a blended income so it doesn't cause any grief for the residents or the neighbors. You said something that's really critical there that I did want to ask because, as I mentioned at the outset, We talk about housing an awful lot on this show, and I'm sure on shows like this across the country, because we are where we are when it comes to the housing crisis, the affordability crisis. How do you at Home Opportunities define affordable? Yeah, so for us, we are because we're working exclusively with ownership, and the key related to ownership is that it doesn't require grants and subsidies, which is why we can work at such large scale. And so our affordability is 32% of your income towards the carrying cost of your unit. So it's a slight variation, which is more related to qualifying for a mortgage than it is to the 30% guideline that's used for rental. And so it's based on 32%. And the reason we use 32% is that the carrying cost will vary by your income. In our model, you actually make the same kind of return that you would on any house that you own, but you only necessarily own a portion because of your income. Therefore, the higher the income, the bigger the portion, the more return you can get. And so as your incomes improve, you're able to increase your control over portions of your home to get a greater return. So our definition is related to income as opposed to a carrying cost. 
And then is home opportunities the the owner, for lack of a better word, of, of the rest of that equity? Um, well, it gets complicated. Okay. <laughs> but we've created an additional corporation called Community Wealth Cooperative. Community Wealth Cooperative is a child of the cooperative movement, and it holds and manages all the finances. We get paid a fee to provide our services, so Community Wealth effectively holds the rest of the value in the unit that the person can't afford to carry until they can afford to carry it. And when the person sells, they use the proceeds of the sale to build two more units. So our intent is to build our way out of the housing problem, not to just subsidize our way around it. I'm not surprised it's called a cooperative because that's it's very much, to me anyway, what this whole idea sounds like. It's got a very cooperative housing feel to it. That's correct. We actually use cooperative corporations that are composed of the future purchasers of a condominium. So this is a this is a way of doing housing that goes back to the 1950s that was called building cooperatives. We call them development cooperatives, but basically the individuals themselves hire the expertise to build their own homes through a cooperative format. Is there a minimum amount of time, Mike, that one must own the home, build some of that equity before selling it? No, no, you're, you're allowed to sell at any time. And the reason that we can do that is that once you sell, it provides an opportunity for two other people. So there's no restriction on resale, but obviously the longer you stay, the more equity you build up. Right. And those two other people is because of what you said earlier, upon sale, you commit to building two more units. Correct. And we've the, the starting point, of course, any development process generates profits. We use those profits to help people with their down payment. When they sell, we get them back, and that's what we use to build two more units. What has the city of Guelph been like as a partner as you try to bring this from idea to actual development? Well, as is the case with most municipalities, we're getting extremely strong political support. And slowly but surely, staff is coming along because it's just a matter of we're so far out of the box that sometimes they can hardly hear us, right? And so it takes time to sort of socialize it through staff. But politicians get it right right away because we're able to cover all municipal expenses. We don't leave them with any out-of-pocket costs that they're trying to get back from the province. So we're very intent on sticking to no grants and subsidies because we want to do thousands of units a year in each municipality that's willing to support us. I wondered about that beyond just the city of Guelph because this is the first such project I've heard of and it's right here kind of in our backyard in the region of Waterloo. Uh, Do you have developments already in place in other municipalities, Mike? We're working closely with Brampton on something smaller, which is 140 units. We're working with Niagara Falls on something of similar size. Uh, We're working with uh, Blue Mountain uh, about possibilities up there. So, yes, we've we've had really good experience. We are looking in the Kitchener-Waterloo area. I went to the University of Waterloo, so I've got a a, a sort of a shining for for the place. And if we find a landowner that's willing to be patient, that's the trick with us. We need to be able to tie up a property until we're ready to start construction. So the landowner has to be patient, but as long as we have a patient landowner, we pay full market value for the land. So they're they're getting taken out whole, just like the municipality and the rest of the government levels are. With this 
proposal in Guelph, what sort of purchase price would we be looking at for one of these affordable homes? That's, of course, another glitch with us. You're buying at a market value. The question is, what are you carrying it for? And that's what we call the cost price. So if you were buying, say, a two-bedroom at $500,000, you could still probably have a mortgage of two hundred and fifty, And the two hundred and fifty would represent a $250,000 purchase price. So we call that the cost price. But in order to protect the profit, you still purchase for the full value of the unit. If Guelph is able to move forward with this, do you have any idea at this juncture, Mike, when these homes could be ready for move-in? Well, I did promise council at the council meeting that if they get the approval through in a year, because we're working with Kiwi Newton, which is a factory housing producer, we could have people moved in within two years of this January, two and a half years of this January. So two and a half years from start to finish would be a record. But I've been setting records for the last 40 years of my career. You mentioned uh, Kiwi Homes. So are these going to be uh, detached homes, uh, townhomes? What are we looking at? You're looking at this point in time at two apartment buildings and a series of what we call multiplexes. So they are both uh, townhouses, but there are one bedrooms on top of one bedrooms and two bedrooms on top of two bedrooms. So you have grade-related one bedrooms, two bedrooms, three bedrooms, and four bedrooms, plus you have the apartment building. It is a, a, a fascinating concept, and I'm, I'm really intrigued to watch it move forward. Mike, appreciate you making time for our show today. Thank you very much for being here. You're welcome. I'll look forward to talking to you in future. As will I. Thanks again. I know. Bye-bye. Mike LeBay is the president and CEO of home opportunities. It's trying and it feels as though it's making some progress in the city of Guelph for a development of about a thousand homes. 961 is the number cited in the council reporting. But 961 homes in the south end of Guelph. That would be, and when you consider there was a letter uh, sent to Guelph Council, that would mean two-bedroom units have an average carrying cost of under $1,400 per month. The affordable housing benchmark established by the city of Guelph is a purchase price of $429,000 or a monthly rental rate of $1,434. So what Home Opportunities is suggesting is that it could create two-bedroom units with an average carrying cost of under that affordable housing benchmark of 1400 per month. You're working in, in tandem with an employer that has, you know, and, and Linamar is such a great example in any community that has a Linamar-like employer within it and folks commuting into Guelph, I'm thinking maybe from the Fergus area, maybe from Aaron, some of these other places, maybe even further afield, right? Because they're living there to get lower cost of housing, right? I know folks that still work here in Kitchener that have gone as far as Woodstock and commute in from there. And that, that's a fairly significant drive along the 401. You know, 40, 45 minutes of 401 travel is probably 50 to 55 minutes on the back roads, so to speak. It's a, it's a fair distance to go just to get to work, but the job might be here and the affordable housing 
might be in Woodstock. So I, I think this is a really interesting concept. And if you're able to work with council to get the necessary zoning changes made and what council in its right, right mind today is going to turn its back on the idea of getting more affordable housing built. We've talked about it an awful lot. Our communities are going to look a little bit different. We're going to have more houses in less space and we're going to have to get creative. This just might be one of those creative solutions to our housing problem. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. It takes time to sort of socialize it through staff, but politicians get it right away because we're able to cover all municipal expenses. We don't leave them with any out-of-pocket costs that they're trying to get back from the province. So we're very intent on sticking to no grants and subsidies because we want to do thousands of units a year in each municipality that's willing to support us. Mike Labbe is the president and CEO of Home Opportunities. They are working on an affordable housing project of almost a thousand units in the city of Guelph. And should council be able to get its approval done, we could see this project completed sometime around late 2026. Not bad. Not bad at all. But there are still some hurdles to clear. Generally speaking, I think the concept certainly is interesting. Let's go to the phones. Paul, what do you think? Yeah, well, you know, I've been listening online and it keeps cutting out. I know. But I caught most I caught most of it. Okay. And to me, you know the old saying when it sounds too good to be true? <laughs> yes, I do know you that know, saying. Because the the concept seems excellent and one of the things that I uh, <clears throat> that I catch from it is the way this is set up, it would be preventing investors from going in and buying up units uh, with the in- uh, intentions of renting and uh, reselling uh, at some time. And that's that's a big part of the uh, problem with the market is uh, anything low income, uh, investors are buying up and renting out. The uh, It sounds like that would kind of protect the uh, development from that. And it's a stepping stone. People who are looking at, uh, you know, saying, you know, my rent is so high, I can't come up with a down payment. I can't afford a high mortgage. This sounds like a great idea. The... um, I'm waiting for the but, Paul, because I agree with you completely to this the point. Only but is okay. when it sounds too good to be true. But okay, another but. There is no reason that the city should be taking extended periods of time to approve projects like this. Even on the news, they were talking CMHC approving a whole pile of uh, different types of plans for developers. <clears throat> that you know, a lot of the paperwork is already in place to try and speed up home building, but they're still looking at outrageous time frames for the various different levels municipal, regional, provincial to get these approvals put through. We got we got to we got to build, and we can't tie up things for uh, a couple of years just sitting on waiting for permits. All right, Paul, I appreciate the phone call. And you know what? I think it's a Christmas miracle because I just agreed with every word this time. Every word. I have no objections, Your Honor, to everything that Paul just said. I I think this model does sound terrific. Let's hope it's not too good to be true. 
let's hope it's too good for any municipality to pass up. And I'm I'm looking directly at you, Region of Waterloo, because you heard our guest, Mike Labay from Home Opportunities, say he went to the University of Waterloo, so he's very fond of this community, would be happy to do the work right here, too. Sounds like they're making progress in Guelph. It's your move, Waterloo Region. An update from the City News Centre is coming up, and then here we are, second Tuesday of the month, headed into the holidays, the perfect time for a mental health check-in with our friends from the Canadian Mental Health Association. That's coming up on the Mike Farwell Show, City News 570 and Rogers TV. We have arrived at the second Tuesday of the month. Also, take note, less than now two weeks until Christmas. Yesterday, yesterday was two weeks exactly to Christmas Day. I don't think I need to tell you these things. You're sitting there shaking your head or rolling your eyes. Come on, Farwell, tell us something we don't know. On the second Tuesday of every month at 1130, you also know this because we've been doing it consistently for quite some time now, and I'm so glad that we can. Our friends at the Canadian Mental Health Association of Waterloo-Wellington have partnered with us so that every month we can just take a moment for what I like to call a little mental health check-in. I mean, necessarily a check-up, but we can check in on how we're doing and as we head into the holidays, the things that might be adding stressors to our lives. Helen Fishburne is the CEO at the Canadian Mental Health Association of Waterloo-Wellington and as always joins us for the check-in. Good morning, Helen. Good morning, Mike. How are you managing? You know what? I'm managing pretty okay, thank you. I'm looking forward to a little time off over the holidays, which is something that I I always anticipate with uh, great eagerness. (laughs) Yeah, it's really important, right? Just to disconnect, unplug, to enjoy some some family time and uh, recharge our batteries. Yeah, you know, and you talk about unplugging and the older I get, the the one of the things I appreciate more and more I find is just the disruption to the routine. Because every day, certainly in my work, and I think it's for many others, it's it's a pretty regimented day. You go in at this time, you complete these tasks, you leave at that time, whatever. Everything kind of revolves around that day. I really value those times where there isn't a, a set schedule. I'll get up when I want. I'll drink as many cups of coffee as I want. I'll take the dog for a walk whenever. Those are nice little breaks for me. Yeah, and those are the things that can help you recharge, right? Just getting out of some of that routine. Even if your routine is is working for you and you're, you know, you're fortunate to be able to love what you do, um, your body and your and your mind still need that break. Yeah, it's a really good way to put it. And now, as I think, too, I'll be getting that break from the usual routine, but the holiday brings with it you know, all all kinds of stresses, maybe more for some than others. And and one of those, Helen, could be around relationships, relationships with family who we're going to be spending time with, and they can be strained before folks get there or become strained over the holiday period. These are things that I think we should be aware of as we head into the holiday season. Yeah, for sure, Mike. And, you know, happy holidays means something different for everyone, right? Everybody has their own experience of what holidays mean, their own, um, you know, it, it's been an, it's been a tough year. We know that, right? When we look at 
um, people struggling financially uh, this year, the housing crisis, you know, the political divisiveness that exists in our community across the globe, international wars, like there, there are continue to be a ton of people that are just feeling very unsettled. Uh, and then on top of that, just within your own family, you know, sadly, there are lots of folks, A, that don't have family that they can count on for support. Um, or be just have difficult relationships in their family. So, you know, going into the holiday season, thinking about that, being prepared for that, and try to make the holiday season, you know, as relaxing and um, as as peaceful for people. That's a goal for everyone, but it does look different for everybody. There's no question. How can we do that if we know there are relationships that are difficult for some in the family, but not everybody, and maybe we're trying to be peacemaker, which in and of itself could be a challenge. How should we approach those things, Helen? Well, first of all, it's always important to be uh, very planful about it, right? So know what you need. Uh, If you can think, you know, we see a lot of holiday movies out there, Mike, where, you know, the Hallmark movie where everything is romanticized and it, it comes out lovely and it's beautiful and you know, very ideal. That's not the real world. The real world is actually thinking through some of these challenges that you experience, whether it's a difficult family member or actually you're on your own over the holidays and you're dealing with loneliness, right? Whatever the issue is, think through it. Think about uh, what your feelings are about those situations and try to find that balance. So if it's time with a family member where you know there'll be some difficult conversations or difficult feelings, um, find some some limits to that. Know that it's okay to spend a couple of hours with that person. You can do your best to stay out of some of those difficult conversations or traps. Um, and then limit that so you're not spending a week with them, right? But you're, you're pacing yourself. On the other hand, if you're going to be alone through the holidays and you're really struggling because you don't have that supportive family network or your family's in another country, right? You have to find places where you can feel that connection and support. You know, there might be clubs or support groups or food banks where you could volunteer or faith communities, right? So, If you can think about your own personal situation, think about what you need over the holidays and try to find that balance, whether it's setting limits around difficult issues or feelings or also finding places where you can feel connected and supported, that will help you prepare and at least should be able to enjoy some time through the holiday season. You talked about those sort of hallmark movie moments and and how we're, I guess, through media taught that the holidays should be and this should be perfect and the snow is going to be, you know, perfectly white and we might meet a handsome woodworker somewhere. I don't know how this all comes (laughs) together, but I I think maybe embracing the imperfection of the holidays can really help us too. Oh, 100%. And I would say that's a huge, like if you have a a strong social media presence, uh, if you turn on the TV and watch any kind of holiday movie, you will see that Uh, perfection seems to be a bar that needs to be set and it absolutely sets people up for failure every single day. Imperfection is actually healthy and normal. Um, And it's really important for all of us to accept our own imperfections and also to accept our imperfections in the people that we love. You know, as we gear up for the holidays, we set these bars 
bars that are impossibly high for ourselves. And then we feel upset when the celebrations don't live up to those expectations, right? And and it, and and we often do it to ourselves, Mike, by setting those standards within our own mind and within our own hearts. So be realistic. Uh, understand that you know your your pumpkin pie may not turn out the way you expect, and that's okay because you have your family around. You can make a joke of it. You know, like there's so many ways that you can continue to find joy in the imperfections. This is why I think I relate to the Griswolds so well. Like, let's just watch a little Christmas vacation and realize sometimes messy can also be great. Messy, you can find so much humor in Messy, right? And, and you know, that is a Christmas movie I think that all of us can relate to. But it's, it's, it's really looked on as a comedy, but it's actually real life. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very true. Yeah. You, you mentioned the, the economic challenges that so many of us have faced this year, Helen. And boy, oh boy, I, I can tell you, we've we had the conversation starting in September in the Farwell household about, you know, it, it's just different this year because things are so much more expensive. There's not as much disposable income. And then there's the pressure that comes with getting that perfect gift and making yeah. sure we're gifting to all of the people that we've always gifted to etc. The financial pressures can be a real burden at this time of year. Yes, they, they absolutely can. And again, that pressure to give um, and to find that perfect gift, uh, again, is part of that setting that unrealistic expectation for yourself. So when you think of gifts, uh, it doesn't need to be something that you buy at a mall or on Amazon. A gift can be anything that comes from the heart. Uh, it can be, you know what, I'm going to come over and take care of your kids for a couple of hours so you can go for a walk or you can go out for a movie with your husband. Um, I'm going to come over and and uh, spend some time with you, going for a walk, having a cup of tea. Um, spending uh, time with someone that you love or someone that needs that support, someone that you know is struggling, uh, is an absolute gift that is so important in and so valued. Uh, offering to drive someone to an appointment, whether they're getting treatment for something, whether they're struggling to go to see uh, a mental health counselor and they're really anxious and worried about that, I'm going to come with you. I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to take you to that appointment. And I'm going to have a cup of coffee with you after, after that appointment, right? There are so many things, Mike, that we can do that our time well spent, we can share some of our talents and gifts and we can just really be with that person in that moment. In a time where our community is struggling financially, food bank usage is through the roof. Our uh, call lines within mental health are also extremely high. We know people are feeling very unsettled. I can tell you that there is a gift that is no more valuable than actually a gift of friendship, support, and kindness. You know, as I think about the pressures that come with the holidays, Helen, it occurs to me that one of those pressures is that, you know, this is supposed to be one of the happiest times and we're going to have all this fun and we're going to get together. And that's not the case for everybody. In fact, for some, the holidays are a really difficult time. Maybe they lost someone that was very close to them, whatever the case may be. The holidays can be really difficult. And I think it's important for us to remember that it's not a joyous experience across the board. 
That's exactly right. And and we certainly see that in our, our calls over the holidays, Mike. And, you know, our Here 24-7 team uh, who are responding to those calls over the holidays. Uh, and again, just a reminder, we are absolutely never closed. Our call lines continue to be open absolutely every hour through the holidays so that we can speak to people that are struggling, so that we can provide that voice of comfort uh, and respond to people if they need uh, us to in whatever way they need us to. So uh, there's always someone there. It is important to know that, you know, as much as I've talked about engaging with people and finding a faith community or a support group in the community or a neighbor, you know, make sure that you're accepting that invitation. You know, if, if the neighbor says, why don't you come over and have a copy with a cup of coffee? Say, yes, I'd love to do that, right? But we also know that people sometimes need more than that too, Mike. And so reaching out for help or encouraging your loved one that you know is really not in a good spot to seek that help, that can also be a, a really important gift. Uh, so know that we are here. Know that there are many places in the community that are caring for people that are vulnerable, that are struggling, um, that need some of the basic uh, gifts in life, but also need that support as well. So you never have to struggle alone through the holidays, that's for sure. We certainly do know that you're always here for us, and we appreciate these conversations. Helen, looking forward to more of them uh, starting in 2024 all over again. Thanks, Mike, and hope you and your family have a wonderful and relaxing holiday. The very same to you as well. Thanks so much, Helen. Take care, Mike. You too. Bye-bye. Helen Fishburne is the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association, Waterloo Wellington, joins us on the second Tuesday of every month at 11.30 for what we like to call a little mental health check-in. Not so much a check-up. You can get those in other places if you're looking for them, but a little check-in and how timely is it with the holidays approaching just for us to be mindful of a few things, the various pressures that come along with the holidays, how to navigate those pressures. And I think one of the most important things is I know we look forward to this in the Farwell household for sure. It's a, it's a great time of year. We've been talking about our anticipation for the holidays for weeks already. It's not the same for everybody. And so we should be mindful of that too. But by all means... If it is something that you're anticipating with great eagerness, as are we, don't be shy about enjoying that. Make sure you take the time and definitely do the unplugging. I can't recommend that enough. All right, before we take a break and then have a conversation with our good friend Tracy Valco, I always look forward to those conversations as well. But I've been getting all kinds of messages, and I thank you for your messages, and I thank you for your loyal ears, and I implore you, Please be patient with us. We're not going off the air necessarily, but we I'll tell you what. There is a, a gremlin somewhere in the system. Devin Robertson is our guy on the other side of the glass. So, like, is the computer trying to do too much today, Devin? Is that, like, that's my layperson's way of describing this here. I don't know what's going on. It's, I'm not 100% certain on the details of it either, and I don't want to say anything that's wrong. So I'll try and temper myself a little bit. Uh, But I think there's a lovely new way of doing things that's communicating with other parts. And sometimes communication uh, breaks down, for lack of a better term. Have you tried kicking anything yet? Because, (laughs) I mean, even if it doesn't work, sometimes it makes you feel better, you know? I have smacked the side of a monitor. (laughs) 
So I am at least giving it the good old college try. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm trying variants on when I push my buttons, but I mean, push too many buttons and then you're overloading a system that's already having fun. And then that's just asking for a bad time. So I'll tell you this, this, this computer is pushing my buttons today, you know? <laughs> so as difficult as it is on the listener, please understand that it's even more difficult on me and Devin, right? This is driving us pretty batty. Like I've, I'm, I don't know about you, but I've almost walked out today. I'm like, I'm done. If the computer ain't working, neither am I. <laughs> I've got my hands in like my face in my hands half the day. <sighs> and I just look at it and I can see what it's doing, but I can't tell you why it's doing what it's doing. Right. And I'm just, I, I ask forgiveness. I promise you if I could fix this, I would fix it immediately. Yeah. So I I just want to make it clear that it's definitely not a Devon problem. And when in doubt, point the finger of blame at the inanimate object, which is the computer. It can't can't talk back. But truly, that's what's got us up. I don't know. It's messy. It's ugly. We're not entirely. It's trying to do too much from what I can tell. It's trying to do things it's not usually expected to do. And then it's taking time to figure out, oh, I don't have to do it oh, I don't have to do this either. And then it gets to what it's supposed to do. That's When I'm watching my screen, that seems to be what it's doing. I see the wheel turn. Oh, I don't need to do this. Okay, let me go to the next thing. Oh, I don't need to do this either. Okay, now let's do the thing I'm supposed to do. So, yeah. yeah. Every time we try to do something, this is going to make life better, I'm sure. At least that's what they tell us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the promise. So In the meantime, we're going to hang in there and get through another show. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Time for the local business spotlight on City News 570. And joined this morning by Tracy Valco, who is the founder and chief visionary officer with the Valco team. Tracy, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Like, we're almost close to Christmas. I cannot believe it. It's less than two weeks. I just said that a moment ago. Can you believe that? Like, 13 days, Tracy. I know. I don't know yet. I know. (laughs) It changes everything. It keeps us behind our schedule for sure. (laughs) One of the things I wanted to ask you about is the Bank of Canada's most recent rate announcement. Every time I hear that an announcement is coming from the Bank of Canada, I cringe a little bit. But what did we get from the last announcement from the bank this year? Listen, it, you know what? To end the year, it's great news. We had a pause. <laughs> we had a pause in bank time. Uh, that's the third time uh, with the last three announcements for the end of 2023 uh, where we have not had a change. So th- it's great news, and it's, it's a very good way to end 2023. Um, one of the conversations that the Minister of Finance had and the economists overall, their sentiment is that we've reached that rate hike. Uh, which is a long relief for all of us uh, that are homeowners that have mortgages and durable rate products or have a line of credit revolving on that. You know, we are, the worst is over. And the forecast, you know, going into 2024 um, is a lot brighter for rate reduction. So we see inflation coming down. We're at 3.1%. We're expected to see that lower um, next week will be the bank of, or the inflation rate in Canada um, for the final one for 2023. So the target of around 2.5 on inflation for 2024, that's the forecast. We should see about a one and a half to two percent. I'm leaning more on the two percent reduction on bank prime next year because most economists are forecasting that. 
uh, you know, listen, we're in an undeclared recession in Canada. Things are slowing down, and we typically are slower come around the Christmas time anyway in the housing market. That bad news is giving us good news on interest rates and will give a lot of homeowners and people that are sitting on the sidelines waiting to get into home ownership a big sigh of relief because we'll have more ability to be able to manage payments coming up. Where are interest rates sitting right now, Tracy? And this is the great news. Fixed rates have actually come down exponentially. In the last 30 days, we've had a 100 basis point reduction. So what does that mean? That means that a five-year fixed right now insurable, so that's less than 20% down payment, we're seeing actually 4.99%, which we haven't seen. Like, we haven't seen that actually since April this year. And that's when the market was quite busy. So I think people are caught up in a lot of the negativity on media. And obviously, there's a lot of turmoil in the world that we're not actually seeing some of the wins right now on what's happening with interest rates and the market. So I'm very, very, very optimistic for 2024. I'm excited to see what's happening. I think the market will slowly start chugging along, and that spring market will be a lot busier than we saw this year. So you mentioned that you're anticipating, as we look ahead to the new year, uh, lower inflation and a decrease in bank prime? Yes. So And they kind of, they do correlate, right? right. Yep. So we're going to see probably 2.5 in mid-2024 on inflation. Um, and we might even see it earlier. It's going to see how slow consumer spending is. Government spending is a huge one, right? We have to see that slow down because that's what's been a bit sticky on inflation. But overall, the forecast is 2.5% mid-2024. of And the rate reductions are um, on bank prime between that one and a half to two percent so we should see bank prime sitting at for us because we're at 7.2 you know we should see it probably under i'd say about yeah we might see it around 5.5 which is not unrealistic to where we need to see it right to help because the biggest thing is mortgage renewals like we have 900 billion of mortgages coming up for renewal in canada in the next three years and the banks are putting a lot of pressure on the government to reduce rates to help people from payment shock, right? And a lot of defaults that the banks would have to actually, you know, take ownership of if these clients can't manage the payments, which we're starting to see. Maybe I won't cringe with Bank of Canada, uh, Bank of Canada announcements in 2024. Maybe they'll no. start dropping things a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Tracy, good news, my friend. I'm looking forward to it. It's always great to get yeah. your perspective on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Mike. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Tracy Valco is the founder and chief visionary officer with the Valco team. She joins us on the local business spotlight. You can look her up at valcofinancial.ca. And Tracy brings us some good news to end the year, looking at reductions in inflation, probably a lower uh, Bank of Canada lending rate come 2024 as well. And so some optimism heading into the holiday season and the new year ahead. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. The local business spotlight where your business comes first on City News 570. Well, not to belabor the point, but it came up a couple of times in the past half hour, two weeks now, less than two weeks until Christmas Day, which means we are into our penultimate week of conversations here in 2023. I always look forward 
to the opportunity to use the word penultimate. Next to last, I'll be here next week until Friday. Uh, I'll be off next Friday, and then it's Christmas break time, and you'll, your ears will be filled with all sorts of best of programming and different things for the week between Christmas and New Year's, and then I'll get back at it with you early in 2024. So in light of that, this week and next provide us an opportunity to listen back to some of our favorite conversations from the past 12 months, the things that really got us talking. And among them was this conversation with a woman in the Simcoe County area of Ontario who, like so many of us, has struggled to find an affordable place to live. So what she decided to do was move into her vehicle. Here is our conversation from earlier this year with Valerie Verhey, the van lifer. Valerie, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you very much for making the time to tell us about this really unique solution you have come up with to our housing crisis. You live what is called a van life. What is that? Well, basically, it's uh, my way of uh, providing myself a a roof over my head. Uh, I've got everything that I need that I've built, uh, home built, into a cube van. And uh, basically, it provides me what I need um, in the face of the housing crisis, where, you know, as a renter, I was finding just the worst places. I mean, my my price range was X number of dollars and and anything in that price range was just getting uh, worse and worse condition, more and more roommates involved, et cetera. Can you take me back to that part of this story, Valerie, where you just decided that, you know what, the rents are so expensive, the number of roommates required are so great that you you came to the conclusion that maybe a van would be the, the next best choice for you? How did this decision come about? Well, literally, you know, when I was looking at what my options were, the only way to provide myself with a clean and um, decent space was to go this route. Uh, I'd had one rental um, problem after another. Uh, I had been back in uh, 2018 um, renting a nice little bachelor pad in the basement apartment in Mississauga. And the people who owned the house ended up uh, retiring and moving back to the homeland. So they, they sold their house. And that's where my problems really began. It's just one nightmare after another. Um, and, of course, every time I would have to move, prices will have gone up, putting even uh, more um, pressure on me to, to be able to pro- pay a higher price point in order to get something decent so i mean this was literally the best alternative i had and and basically the reason i came out and i i've been talking to uh the aurelia uh, town council to try and um have them consider you know um accommodating Ben life people is because there is a, a quite a number of people out there it's a certain demographic that i'm talking about who still have some resources that may be going on a downslide much as i was um, and this would be more of an option to them if they could have parking as a you know a solution that was already solved for them because it is a big issue and i mean if you look at it this way in Canada. Van life is huge down in the States, but they don't have necessarily all the winters that we do. 
And um, so you have to overcome all those challenges to begin with. You have to overcome the challenge of downsizing to the size of a van. And, uh, you know, how are you going to meet the resource needs that you have, water and, and waste and so on and so forth. And uh, so I just really feel like that there's quite a number of people out there who might be willing to um, catch themselves from falling by adopting this way of life if given a little bit of support by the community. Well, and that's one of the other interesting aspects of this story, or at least one that I certainly found interesting, your work with Aurelia Town Council to essentially uh, create bylaws that would allow you to park your cube van in a given place so that it would become your slice of Aurelia, so to speak. So what's that process been like and where is Town Council at with it right now? Well, I'm still waiting on a date for uh, a question and answer, a Q&A uh, session with the Affordable Housing Committee of um, Aurelia. They also invited me to um, apply to be on the Housing Committee, which I have done, and I, uh, I'm waiting to hear back about that. Uh, I've also been <laughs> approached by some citizens um, since the article ran regarding uh, possible financing and and help with, um, you know, the idea of purchasing a property and developing a proper van life venue. Um, that's seriously in its infancy. I have no, <laughs> I haven't made any traction on that yet, but you know, it is a hope at the moment though. I'm hoping maybe Aurelia will take maybe a tentative step, uh, tr- maybe a trial, uh, pro, you know, pilot project sort of thing. Um, it's the main issue in Aurelia because all summer long you can park in Aurelia's parks overnight but in winter time the bylaw prevents it because of snow removal and of course commercial um, spaces also have the same issues so the idea that you know maybe they can somehow accommodate Ben Lifers by adjusting uh, maybe a, a schedule of rotation or something like that and I also included in my um, initial proposal to uh, Aurelia um, the idea of van life parking permits, because again, this is uh, you know uh, something that we're we're trying to address the housing affordable housing issues, and there's lots of big projects out there. But this is something that I'm hoping can be um, you know more immediate and low cost, and so you know a little parking permit maybe helps them get there, you know, with signage or you know whatever accommodations they have to make to snow removal, et cetera. I want to talk a little bit more to Valerie about what van life is like, because thanks to Greg's story and some of the pictures shared, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's what kids still say, but this is pretty tricked out. Like you're not, this is not just like putting a sleeping bag over yourself and, and going into the back of a V-dub van. We're talking about a cube van here and, and you've got, looks like, running water, uh, electricity, et cetera. Can you tell us a little bit about the the living environment? Sure, no problem at all. Um, so, you know, I didn't have a, a, a really large budget, and there's certainly lots of, um, you know, uh, builders out there who will professionally build you whatever it is that you want. But uh, I DIY'd this 
this thing for myself. And, you know, when you say running water, I use that term loosely. It's a jug of water that I've mounted above the sink, a sink in a, in a vanity that I got free off Kijiji. Um, I, you know, I use a camping toilet and uh, I have a cook, a camp cook stove. I also do have a proper uh, RV furnace to keep myself warm. And, um, um, of course, I have a, a bed and um, lots of storage space. And as far as electricity goes, I have a little solar on the roof and a, and a you know, a storage bank that um, charges off of that. I also have a separate um, battery for the furnace which char- charges off the vehicle when it's running. So, I mean, it's it's doable for a lot of people. You don't have to be fancy and, and you know, pull out all kinds of money. Uh, to to get something that's comfortable and everything that you really need. What about personal hygiene, showering, etc.? Well, um, in the summertime, I actually buy what's called a a provincial day pass, provincial park day pass. Um, It's very affordable, and I'm trying to remember the exact amount. I think it was around $115 or $120 for the entire year. And it affords me the use of the park during daytime hours, 8 in the morning till 10 at night. You can use their showers. You can use their dumping station. You can get your fresh water there. You can use, uh, you know, the, of course, <laughs> actual toilets. And, um, and of course, a, a quiet place to park, um, you know, hiking trails. They usually some of them have beaches and so on and so forth. So open to your day use, uh, which is... Um, very uh makes makes life very comfortable then uh in the winter it becomes a little more difficult uh, parking is definitely number one issue and uh, i have i'm lucky to have friends and family who allow me to use their shower um, and the rest of the time i literally sponge bathing um using my sink and water supplies that that summer setup sounds almost idyllic valerie it really is and i mean ideally it would be awesome to have a venue that was specifically designed for van lifers um be them passing through maybe uh, permits that are a nightly permit you have uh, annual permits I'm, and would love to see something really um substantial built for the purpose but uh, in the meantime you know i just really like to to see some sort of progress uh, made in accommodating van lifers one of the other things that I think is important to bring to bear in this conversation is the fact that you are also employed, correct? Oh, yes. I would say the majority of van lifers are employed. Um, I had referred to a certain demographic. These are people who are hardworking. They're taxpaying. They do have some resources available to them, but like myself, the rental situations out there are getting more and more expensive to the point where you have no money left over for anything else and so how are you ever supposed to dig yourself out of the hole you're just going to keep sliding down until you hit a place where you're now in in the system social assistance whether you're having mental health and um, uh, medical issues now that are uh, overburdening are already overburdened systems uh, food banks are being overrun so you know i just really like to see us stem the flow of people hitting hitting that point where they have no other recourse in fact i will tell you case in point there is a young man that i've um, sort of been counseling on on van life issues who has an excellent job but he's been living in his car due to uh very bad relationship issues and 
you know, so he, if he goes ahead and he saves the money to get into a rental apartment, then he really feels like it will be uh, just a slow downhill, you know, um, slide for him. So I'm really hoping that he will be able to, he's he's considered buying a van, he's looking around, maybe he can just one step at a time, get a little bit, uh, one step above his car, one step at a time. And that's the thing, like when you have the ability to help yourself, your your mental health, your physical health, everything becomes a little easier. What's a typical meal look like in van life, Valerie? Uh, well, I personally found... I had a um, like a Coolatron for refrigeration, and it it hasn't uh, worked out very well because it's a, such a power draw, and actually in the summertime it vents hot air. So I only buy fresh foods uh, that I can use for that day, and uh, the rest of the time I rely on um, uh, shelf stables foods, but many of which that have to be cooked. Uh, but I just make one meal at a time. So pastas and those sorts of things, but uh, everything from um, dry cereals to uh, uh, quinoa. I love love quinoa. Um, yeah, anything with meat. I only buy enough for for the day, and uh, that's basically how I live. I mean, you can get refrigerators, but again, it's it's all about the resources, right? And I feel that this is what's worked for me. How did you get connected to these other van lifers, if you will? Okay, well, mainly my connections have been um, pers- in person. People who have come across me in one one form or another and, and I've made connections. But I also am a part of a Project Van Life um, forum. Anybody who's uh, thinking about it and uh, wants to uh, get more information, it is an extremely comprehensive website um, and the forum is the ability to connect with other van lifers when you can't find what you need in the resources on the site. Would you recommend it, Valerie? A hundred percent. I uh, <laughs> I think anybody who's struggling to continue putting a, a roof over their head um, should really consider checking it out. And um, one of the nice things about Project Van Life is they have um, you know questions you should be asking yourself before you take the first step. Things you need to think about: what are you willing to compromise? Because obviously you're compromising a lot of material things in order to live this way. Do you miss any of those trappings? I do not. Um, one of the things that has come with being uh, a van lifer is feeling a little bit freed from those possessions. I think more and more people are coming to understand that possessions can be a real burden. If you don't have money to maintain them and um, uh, do all the things that you want to do without having to worry about that all your money is going to the roof of your head. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, we we still need our downtime. We need to be able to live life and, and enjoy life. And if you can't do that because you have not one penny left, to your name at the end of the day, then, you know, this is definitely a way to free yourself of, uh, of that and get yourself back into a better position, which is exactly what I'm doing. I mean, I'm saving my money, working on a long, longer-term solutions for myself, and I can do that because I'm not paying rent right now. Is that to say, then, perhaps, that van life, in the grand scheme of things, is only temporary? You would like to move into more permanent housing at some point? Absolutely, I will. Um, 
I have not met very many van life people that have been doing this as a as a way of living long term. There are some out there. Um, I think um, for myself, it's definitely a temporary measure. I'm, I'm 53 now, so uh, you know I don't see myself being <laughs> into my old age. So I need to make you know I need to have a game plan, and that's exactly what I'm working on right now. It certainly sounds like you're on the right track. This is an incredible story, and I really appreciate you making time to share it with us today, Valerie. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate having the chance to get the word out there. Valerie Verhe, van lifer in the town of Orillia. We spoke to Valerie back in February, if you can believe it. And in listening again to the conversation... It is no less relevant, at least from where I'm sitting. And it occurs to me that as we continue to look for creative solutions and we continue to talk about the affordability crisis, particularly in housing, why don't municipalities get on board with this kind of idea? Again, think outside the box. Be creative. We need affordable places for people to live. Valerie and others can make it work In a van, all they need is a place that is legal to park around the clock. Surely, we can make that kind of accommodation in a city, can't we? I mean, why not? Sure beats a tent on the street corner, in my opinion. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. We're trying to address the affordable housing issues, and there's lots of big projects out there. But this is something that I'm hoping can be more immediate and low cost. And so, you know, a little parking permit maybe helps them get there, you know, with signage or, you know, whatever accommodations they have to make to snow removal, etc. That is Valerie Verhe, who is a self-described van lifer. She's got a job. It's just that the cost of rent was eating up pretty much everything she earned. So she had the vehicle and she created for herself the opportunity and she continues to lobby council in her town of Aurelia to make accommodation for parking for essentially her home on wheels. It works for her. It works for others. And I'm just thinking about the various ways we have gone about trying to get creative around the housing issues in our community. We've got tiny cabins out by the public school board buildings on Ardelt Avenue. We've got storage containers that act as a managed outdoor encampment on Herbs Road. We're talking about another such managed outdoor encampment, presumably more storage containers, whatever it is. However it is we're doing it, why not add this to the mix? That's all I'm throwing out there for conversation. Gary sends an email to Mike at 570news.com. Great story about van life. I think it may not be something that you've considered. You might recall during this year, we also talked to the mother of a student at the University of Guelph who was also going to be living in what I might call a tricked-out van. But city didn't allow for it. She couldn't find parking for it. She also got shamed on social media when she reached out through a Facebook group looking for parking. Eventually, they did find a suitable apartment, uh, a a sublet, really, a room to rent for her son. But why do we look down our noses at this idea? Is it safe? Is it comfortable for the person living in it? Does it provide another housing option? I say yes across the board. We'll see if there's any movement on it. 
Uh, we're out of time here, but maybe if you want to weigh in on that more, uh, Parting Shots comes up in about 15 minutes' time. Right now, I have to get you to the City News Centre for an update. And then a young man who plays hockey is dedicated to gathering equipment to help more people play hockey, specifically Indigenous youth. We'll tell you his story. Well, he'll tell it to you, in fact, when he joins us next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. You know, it occurs to me that we have unintentionally featured over the last number of weeks several stories that show our local hockey teams getting involved in various community initiatives, whether it be organizing a charity game, supporting a charitable event event for the food bank, like our Photos with Santa story from uh, just a week or so ago. And now we turn our attention to the Air Centennials and one of their players, goaltender Ethan Kowach, who is involved in an equipment drive for a very specific group of people. And Ethan makes time for our show this afternoon. Ethan, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine, thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing great. (laughs) Glad to hear that. So take me back several years to when this idea of starting an equipment drive for Indigenous hockey players first occurred to you? Yeah, so back in 2015, when I was about or about eight years ago, I was watching the NHL awards ceremony with Carey Price, who uh, he was with. This was the year he won many different awards, but it was in his Vesna uh, recipient speech where he had uh, talked about how difficult it was for people in his community and other Indigenous communities to receive hockey gear, and this uh, from this meeting, it inspired me to want to start my own hockey drive. So I, I love that you get inspired to start your own hockey drive, but that makes it sound, I think anyway, and maybe you can fill in the details, but it sounds a lot easier than it might be. How did you go about doing this? Yeah, so at first it was quite difficult to get into as it was hard to find a way to get the gear up there, but back in 2015 in the fall we uh, were put in contact with Paul Harrison who was able to uh, help negotiate and find a way to get the gear up to the first community which was Fort Albany Um, and so as we've grown from there we've been able to get the support of the OPP uh, who've been able to help distribute the gear to other northern communities like Fort Albany, Attawapiskat, Moose Factory just to name a few and they use planes, trucks, many different things like that so it's been it's been incredibly uh, we're incredibly grateful that these people at the OPP and so on have been able to help us and get all the gear up there. Do you do this on an ongoing basis, Ethan, or is it a dedicated time every year that you collect the equipment, et cetera? How do you go about doing it? 
Yeah, so every year, typically at the start of every hockey season, we uh, we negotiate with people around the league, old leagues I've been in, whether it was the GTHL, which is a Toronto-based league, or our current league with uh, Junior B, Air Centennials. Uh, we would reach out, just go or talk to people, let them know that this is what's happening, and as the hockey season goes on till about uh, November, uh, that's when we usually say that we're done collecting and the uh, OPP come and collect the gear for us. You mentioned that this idea came to you while watching the NHL awards in 2015. That is kind of in the before times, if you will, because nobody knew in 2015 what would happen to us in 2020. How much of an impact did shutdowns, etc., around COVID have on your efforts? Yeah, COVID uh, incredibly impacted the efforts as it was harder to get gear just because people were not willing to give it up just yet. But as COVID went on and people started getting new gear, growing out of their current gear, not being able to play, quitting or whatever it was, they were able to collect a bunch of gear and we were able to get it. And honestly, we had some of our most successful years during the COVID years just because people were growing up and getting rid of old gear and they had it laying around. And so it was incredibly, it honestly helped us quite a lot. Do you have any idea over the years to date, Ethan, how much equipment you've been able to collect? Like, do you weigh it or do you look at the items you collect? How do you, how do you measure that? So I don't have an exact number of how much we've collected over the the entire span of this drive, but I know in our most successful year, we collected about 350 bags, 100-plus sticks, and dozens of sets of goalie gear, and that was our most successful year. That's absolutely incredible, especially, and you would know, as goalie gear, not only is it harder to come by, but that stuff doesn't come cheap either. (laughs) (laughs) No, it does not. (laughs) (laughs) So what about the communities that have benefited from this? Are you able to see the results of the equipment getting there? Yeah, so we often are getting pictures sent back to us about the equipment that gets up there, pictures of it on the table, pictures of the kids going and picking out their new pairs of skates. It's it's honestly incredible seeing these pictures that we get from them. Like, it's just, it really continues to inspire me and show me how impactful this has been. And it just, like, it really brings a smile to my face just knowing that, these kids get to play the sport that I've loved to play for my whole life. Uh, it's amazing. I love to hear that. And you talked about this starting when you were a GTHL player, now continuing in the Junior B loop, of course, with the Air Centennials. How did the fine community of Air respond to your efforts this year? <laughs> they, honestly, like it was amazing like how responsive they were, getting messages from people of, hey, we'd love to support your drive. Where can we donate this stuff to? And we had held our donation drive after a game against Caledon and everyone had brought their gear and we had to bring a full U-Haul trailer down for one game of gear being collected. It was honestly incredible. Yep, that sounds like the air I know too. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What kinds of gear do you collect? I mean, gently used? I don't think you want the shin pads I used to have, but maybe maybe that would be worthwhile. I'm not sure. Honestly, everything. We collect everything all the way from helmets to jock straps to skates, uh, anything at all. And um, this year we had to put a hold on jerseys and socks just because we've collected so many in the past that they were just overflowing with jerseys and socks, which is 
a situation I guess you want to be in where they have too much that you they have to tell you to stop collecting too much. Absolutely. Absolutely. What what does it mean to you? Like do you ever take a moment, Ethan, once that U-Haul trailer is filled, for example, to just sit back and think about the impact that you and others behind this drive have made on these indigenous communities and, and maybe inspiring that next young hockey goaltender or hockey player. Do you ever take a moment to think about that impact and, and how you've made it happen? Honestly, if I do take a step back to look at it, it's for a very short amount of time because then I'm already thinking about what I want to do for the following year and how I want to make it even better or who I could reach out to. So it's a very short amount of time where I take a step back and look at it because I just really want to focus on what we can do for the next year as well. So is it fair to say that now that this year's drive has been completed, you're already thinking about it? There's no sign yet of slowing down on this? Not yet, no. (laughs) We're already thinking, ready to go for next year. You're a young man, you're full of energy. Uh, Just as a bit of an aside, why did you end up, like I always thought that the kids that got thrown in goal were, I don't know, maybe the ones that nobody liked. Or I'm kidding. But why did you end up being a goaltender, Ethan? <laughs> Honestly, this, like I was just thrown into my tight game, and I remember strapping on the pads for the first time. And obviously, as I feel like a rite of passage for every goal is you strap the pads on wrong the first time, and I did that. And um, I just went out and played, and I loved it. I loved having get sh- uh, pucks get shot at me and just, from that moment, I just knew I loved the sport and I wanted to play goal. It takes a special kind. It really does. How have you enjoyed your season uh, in the Greater Ontario Junior League with the Air Centennials? It's been amazing. Air has been treating me great from the Billet family all the way to the staff and the players. I love the boys. It's awesome being around the dressing room. I'm very supported here and I'm getting everything I possibly could ask for and more. Not a bad barn you get to play in either at the NDCC, eh? Mm-hmm. It's really nice. I love it. Dressing room's amazing. The uh, staff around there is amazing at the rink. Couldn't be more grateful for them because without them, we wouldn't have been able to play there. I think uh, what you're doing with this equipment drive is is really special. It's terrific to see a young person getting so involved. Uh, keep it up, and we'll look forward to next year's equipment drive. Awesome. Thank you very much, Mike. I'll talk to you soon. I look forward to it, Ethan. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Ethan Kolach, he's a goaltender with the Air Centennials. But more than that, he's a kid who had an idea. Eight years ago, he's watching the NHL awards ceremony and he hears Carey Price talk about how difficult it was to get equipment to his First Nations community. And by the way, just as an aside here, did you notice? Because I certainly did. And I promise you, I did not prep Ethan in advance for this. But he did not mention the team that Carey Price played for. And look, I love me some Carey Price. Good guy all around, as far as I can tell. And frankly, I mean, I'm, I'm man enough to admit it. One of the best goalies we've ever seen play the game. But I'm not going to mention the team that he played it for, and neither did Ethan. It's almost as though Ethan understood the rules of this show and the team that shall not be named. Like, would you? could you imagine if I had cut him off 90 seconds into that conversation, we would have missed all of the rest of his hard work and that U-Haul trailer full of equipment that was gathered at this year's equipment drive with the Air Centennials. Anyway, he has this idea eight years ago. He continues to carry it today to the point where, in some cases, they have too much of some things of the equipment 
that's being collected and then donated through a great network of logistics to get to Indigenous communities so that young Indigenous kids who are interested in the game have the necessary equipment to play it. I think it's terrific. Keep your ears and eyes open for another equipment drive next fall. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we have arrived at that time, the time for parting shots on the program. So if you've got one, take it. That's coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Quite a bit of feedback on the show today already, and I'm here for it. I'm always here for it. I love to hear your voice at 519-570-2545 or by cell, star 570. You can even use toll-free Jay's favorite line, long distance, 1-800-570-5715. Remember the 800 part for that because there is a 519-570-5715. I learned that at an event not too long ago. And uh, the gentleman who gets the calls finds it rather amusing that people are calling asking for the Mike Farwell show when it's not a 519. It's 1-800-570-5715. But among the emails received today, Gary writes to Mike at 570news.com. Drinking in Victoria Park? Hey, if you can walk down a street and smoke a joint, you should be able to walk down the street and drink a beer. Gary, you're not wrong, pal. Paul? to Mike at 570news.com regarding our just completed conversation about van life. If you get around a bit, Paul writes, you might see small travel trailers in various discrete locations around the region. All right, fair enough. I love this email from Ed to Mike at 570news.com. I'm a school bus driver, and I drive to 10 or more schools in a day, which are dead zones 23 hours of the day. You've mentioned speed cameras many times and have had city councillors singing the praises of them. I have not heard a mention of the Vision Zero program which is being implemented. Please read up on it on their website. Ed, I just mentioned Vision Zero today when I played audio from Kitchener City Councillor Scott Davey who asked the question in the last five years, how many fatalities in school zones? Zero. Zero. I think we've already achieved Vision Zero. Those 175 cameras that the region wants to put in our area, Ed writes, will be monitored by 30 people in a control center. The local police are not involved. So if you get caught, you pay the fine, but you never lose points. If I speed, I want a live person giving me a ticket. Where does all this money go that is collected since when do we as drivers need to be controlled 24-7? Ed, I'm with you on this. I I have come around almost a full 180 on the whole speed camera idea. I said this morning, I'll say again, regional government, from staff to elected official, if you're listening, it's not too late to change course on this. We tried photo radar in the province about 30 years ago. Where is it today? Honestly, this is, it, it seems to me more and more misguided as we go along. All right, let's go to the phones. Kyle is with us. Hello, Kyle. Hello. Um, some positivity. I don't know. Have you heard about this new drug called Craftio or Caftio? I have not. So I was reading the news today, and apparently it's a big game changer for cystic fibrosis. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm surprised I haven't heard about it then. 
I don't know. I check it out. I, do, I don't want to say anything on the radio because I could be some some parts wrong. Okay. But I would love for you to even even tomorrow morning before you do your regular show, check it out. But I was I was watching on the uh, the news this morning before your show, and apparently it's a, a, a big game changer on how it helps uh, cystic fibrosis uh, cystic fibrosis patients and the way. That like I, I'm not sure. you know more about the disease than I do so just please just check it out and then explain for me because I can't Mike you're you're better at it than I am all right so just check out Crafty <laughs> my friend all right Kyle thanks for the call Trikafta of course is the most recent that I'm aware of and I'll use this as a reminder that you helped us get Trikafta into the bodies of more patients with cystic fibrosis so thank you very much for that. Over the last 10 years and the more than $1.2 million we've raised through Farwell for Hire, it helped... DKGLAM Kitchener. Well, it helped increase the uh, research into that drug, it helped get it to market, and it helped us advocate to get it into the hands of more patients. So, thank you for that, and I will check out this latest and greatest that Kyle just heard about, for sure. Dave, parting shots over to you. Yeah, just some food for thought on, on a subject that nobody's mentioned. Okay. And that is your subject on bad drivers or inattentive drivers. How about when people or manufacturers switched from stick shift to automatics? You know what, Dave? Interesting point made by you. And, and the vehicle I'm currently driving is the first automatic transmission I've had in in more than two decades for sure. I hear where you're coming from because if you're doing something else with your right hand, you're less likely to be on your phone or holding a hamburger. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Dave. Thanks for that. You know, you talk about manufacturers. Honestly, this is a place where I think we have tremendous opportunity to build in technology into vehicles that could help prevent some of these things. Like what about in-vehicle anti-impaired driving technology? What about, like my steering wheel, and and I admit, because I've been driving long enough that I don't always have the firmest grip, right? I'm just kind of doing the thumb steer. My vehicle will tell me, like it doesn't think I have my hands on the wheel. Surely we could equip vehicles with technology that notices our attention is being diverted and give us some sort of warning. When you don't do your seatbelt up, it tells you. Sure as heck does. Anyway, Dave, I hear you. I mean, could you imagine though? <laughs> I just, I'm just thinking now because as we've talked recently about driving and how poorly we navigate the roads these days, could you imagine taking all these bad drivers and trying to teach them how to drive a stick shift? <laughs> That'd be a nightmare. But the transmission shops would love it because we'd burn out a few clutches, wouldn't we? Yes, we would. George, parting shots to you, sir. Yes, uh, Mike, if you had asked me the question, what made me crazy enough to go in net and play goalie in hockey, I would have been an easy answer for you, Tony Esposito. Tony O, baby. Oh, yeah. When I saw him play, I thought, I got to be a goalie, and I was a goalie the whole time. I wanted to ask you, in that interview, did he say it was Paul Henderson who helped him? I thought he said Harrison, but Henderson would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah, I thought, I couldn't understand if you had said Henderson or Harrison. So that's why I was calling to find out if it was Paul Henderson. We still got you, George. You're still here. Yeah, I couldn't understand if you had said Paul Henderson. It wouldn't surprise you because I met Paul Henderson a few times, and that's something you definitely would do. I agree with you, 100%. Thanks, George.
All right, we're going to get one more in here. It's our buddy Grant. Hey, Grant. Hey there, big guy. Hey there, big guy. Or short little man. That's true. I am a short little man. Yeah, I found some information about that new drug. It, it is a transformal drug that has the potential to treat up to 90% of Canadians with cystic fibrosis. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Grant. Yeah. Well, I want the Rangers to play again. I think they should play all day long. Saddle down. All day No, I can't. <laughs> Kitchener Rangers have played, had played, up until Sunday, 10 games in 17 days. 10 games in 17 days. So I can understand your anticipation for the next game, believe you me. But as much as I like Fixie, Paul and I were saying to one another, like, goodness gracious, we're seeing more of each other than we are our families. And so, boy, oh boy, it's been busy. They've got two more games before the Christmas break. We're going to get to Christmas, and it will be 34 games exactly, half the season done at the Christmas break. I don't think I've ever seen that before. And, of course, you want to see the Rangers play again because they're winning more often than not. 75% of their games they have won. All right, just before I let you go for the day, and I... oh. Do I ever hate to uh, leave on such a somber note? But I have to because it, it came across from my friends at the Bond Park podcast. And one of my friends of the podcast is Marshall Ward, who also used to write for the Waterloo Chronicle. When I started writing for the Chronicle, Marshall had already been there for some time. We became friends over the years, and I am so sorry to have learned that at the tender age of 52... Uh, we lost Marshall unexpectedly back on December the 3rd. So uh, details are at Herb and Good Funeral Home. That's herbgood.com. But I, I just learned of this moments ago, and it breaks my heart because Marshall was as gentle a soul as ever you'll want to meet and just a terrific all-around fella who was always up for a conversation and a witty word or two. Uh, He will certainly be missed. But I wanted to at least pass that along to you as it was passed along to me and send my sincere condolences to Sylvia, the kids, and the rest of the wide community of friends that Marshall had made in his all-too-short 52 years. An update from the City News Center is coming up. Rob Snow standing by. I can see him right over there getting ready for now you know, and we'll come back and do this all over again tomorrow starting at 9 o'clock. How's that sound? Devin Robertson is the guy on the other side of the glass, and he hasn't kicked a single computer today. He's a better man than I am. My name is Mike Farwell. Bye for now.